Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For every shooting, like the one in Colorado, we, in the, me- in the media and in society, we ask the same two questions. Why and could this have been prevented? Often we seek those answers from the parents of the killer, and quite often those answers, well, frankly, they're not forthcoming. The parents often go into hiding. Some people get angry at the parents. Nancy Lanza was one of her son's victims, but she was also the one who connected him with guns and who watched his emotional disintegration into a pit of violence and anger. And what of Adam Lanza's dad? We've heard nothing from him. What about the Klebolds or the Harrises, the parents of the Columbine shooters? What about the Pearsons? In the book Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity, author Andrew Solomon interviewed the parents of Dylan Klebold from Columbine. Interviewed them multiple times over seven years. And Mr. Solomon joins me now from New York. Thanks for being here. You've studied hundreds of families who encounter a wide range of issues with their children. How much should we hold the parents of these teen killers accountable? I think it's very comforting to hold the parents of the killers accountable. It makes us feel like the situation can be controlled. But I think it's often misguided. Some of these kids come from very disturbed homes, but many of them have extremely loving parents who are trying to pay close attention to them. Certainly with the Klebolds, they were really quite wonderful parents, and they had no idea what was going on inside their son's head. Well, you spent a lot of time with the parents of Dylan Klebold, and the mother, Sue, told you that, quote, what I've learned from being an outcast since the tragedy has given me insight into what it must have felt like for my son to be marginalized. He created a version of his reality for us to be pariahs, unpopular, with no means to defend ourselves against those who hate us. So talk to us about what they're going through and what you learned about their relationship with Dylan before the shooting. I think a lot of us have a tough time imagining that there were no warning signs at all. I think they had a very loving relationship with Dylan and that he appeared to be an adolescent who was a little um, angsty and that they had moments of thinking that he was struggling a little bit, but nothing major, nothing serious, and certainly nothing that was threatening to other people. If they were concerned about anything, they were concerned that he was himself sad and might be a little bit depressed. Um, and after, uh, after it took place, they were in a state of complete shock. It was inconceivable to them that the child they knew would be capable of such a thing. So let's turn to the parents of Adam Lanza. Last week, I spoke to Nicole Hawkley, who lost her son, Dylan, Uh, at Newtown last year. I asked her what she made of the evidence that Nancy Lanza, the mother, had kept guns in the house and had even provided her son with weapons. Here's her response. I believe that the Sandy Hook shooting could have been avoided if the proper intervention had been made, if he and his family had received help, had sought help, and had received help at an earlier stage. Obviously, each one of these tragic stories uh, is separate and distinct. What do you make of Nancy Lanza and her involvement with her son, providing him with guns, allowing him to fester in this cocoon of hatred in his room? Does she bear any responsibility for what happened at Sandy Hook? Well, look, what happened at Sandy Hook was an unspeakable tragedy, as these events are tragedies. 
I think it's clear that if she had thought that he was dangerous, she would not have left the gun sitting out since he used one of them to kill her and she presumably didn't want that to happen. I think she was bewildered by her own child. You know, we all like to think that we know our children, that we know their inner lives, but people keep secrets from their parents. People keep all kinds of secrets. The Lancers actually did seek help. They went to a number of psychiatrists with um, Adam, mostly because he had Asperger's syndrome and they were trying to figure out how to help him to function. None of the professionals who saw him ever picked up on the possibility that he could pose an acute danger to anyone else or to himself. Andrew Solomon with insights into what it's like being a parent of one of these teen killers. Thank you so much for your time. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, July 20, 2023. So I have been told this is the Catherine Massey Book Club debut study session on Sue Klebold racist suspect her memoir A Mother's Reckoning uh, in fact I'm going to read you what it says on the front cover A Mother's Reckoning Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy introduction by Andrew Solomon who you just heard from it continues Sue Klebold's book reads as if she had written it under oath while trying to answer honestly and completely an urgent question what could a parent have done to prevent this tragedy she earns our pity our empathy and often our admiration and yet the book's ultimate purpose is to serve as a cautionary tale not an exoneration the New York Times book review and this was a New York Times best seller I could vomit MBK NBK NBK not to be lost on us yes you did hear Dr. Dre playing in the background, uh, background uh, their smash hit I guess you would say the day the Negros took over in response to the Rodney King beating and acquittal in 1993 Simi Valley this is playing because this tune also was on the Natural Born Killers soundtrack I would be willing to take the over Sue Klebold probably overheard this song playing in Dylan's room. Either playing when he watched the movie for the 50th time, or he probably had the soundtrack. He had songs from the soundtrack listed on his favorite tunes list. 
and those two cowardly killers talked about the LA riots anyway as I said you heard Andrew Solomon Whiteman a gay white man at the beginning of the book uh, he interviewed Sue and Tom Klebold for his 2012 book Far From the Tree I think it's also important to ponder uh, Andrew Solomon is a gay white man what is the fascination that these gay white men have with writing about Columbine and these killers and particularly to take some sort of sympathetic viewpoint right we heard Andrew Solomon in the snippet where he says uh, that now the Clebo parents they know what it's like to be like their son to be unpopular and hated some sort of social pariah of victim you know they were loving parents they were good parents no reason them to think that this is going to happen you know old Dylan he was he was a little angsty he was struggling a little nothing major all that minimization like pause I could get to the felony arrest we just talked to Jeff Jeff Cass white man and he said it well it wasn't you know it depends on how it was classified it was a felony arrest trespassing theft breaking into a vehicle felony arrest suspended from school twice for Dylan hacking into the computer scrawling uh, profanities on a student's locker all of that I'm going to skip all of that diversion program lackluster effort not even doing well in gym you got to be a lazy good for nothing nobody to be messing around in gym you can't even get a C in gym you didn't want to put your gym shorts on forget all that do you all remember literally days before the 1999 massacre, April 20, Dylan turns in this paper that his white teacher says was the most disturbing product a student has ever submitted. She says she contacted the Klebolds to tell them, you know, man, Dylan wrote this and it's about killing people and stabbing and shooting and the killer actually wore a trench coat, six feet four, almost like Dylan. And she said that the parents said, ah, boys will be boys. You, know, you got to try to understand children these days. They watch the, the, the TV programs and they play the shoot 'em up doom and all that. They got vivid imaginations. You know, it's just having a little fun. Not, oh, dang. He already got arrested and trespassing and suspended from school and all this and in the diversion program and not motivated at school. Like, whoa. Even Jeff Cassis, she wrote that line that he was fascinated with guns and bombs and all this. Is No, I do not think that they were good parents. I do not think that they earned our respect, admiration, none of the above. And they had two children that had substance abuse problems. They forgot about that with old Byron. Ah. Anyway, I think it's fascinating that they had to get old Andrew Solomon, best-selling white author, to write the introduction and to give them some sort of, what what shall I say, sympathy, uh, that we should have an, an open mind to hearing their perspective about all of this. Do you know, in his book, Far From the Tree, Andrew Solomon writes extensively about the Klebold family in chapter 10, Crime, 
do you know what the next chapter is titled? Transgender. I said Andrew Solomon classifies as gay. They got him as the so-called white expert to come and talk to us about parents and their relationship to children. How they cope with all of this. He's not even a parent. Unless he abducted, adopted someone's offspring. Anyway. All of that for a little bit of context as we begin Sue Klebold's memoir, A Mother's Reckoning. Uh, I thought it would be grand. There are lots of ways that we could have started all of this. Our introduction will be Randy Brown's thoughts. I thought this was great. This is from the Rocky Mountain News way back when, 2012. Excuse me, from the Denver Post, not the Rocky Mountain News. Denver Post, 2012. Randy Brown writes... Last month, Sue Klebold, mother of Columbine High School killer Dylan Klebold, gave an interview to author Andrew Solomon for his new book, Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. In the book, Sue Klebold is quoted as saying, while every other mother in Littleton was praying that her child was safe, I had to pray that mine would die before he hurt anyone else. I saw the end product of my life's work. I had created a monster, she told Solomon. For the first time, I understood how Dylan appeared to others. When I saw his disdain for the world, I almost hated my son. I wanted to destroy the video that preserved him in that twisted and fierce mistake. But Sue Bold's words add nothing to our understanding of either her family or that of Eric Harris, the other teen who committed the killings. Were her comments an attempt to gain sympathy? Are the Klebolds and Harrises even deserving of sympathy? There are certainly families involved in the Columbine tragedy that do deserve our sympathy. Their names are Rohrbaugh, Anne Patron, DePooter, Fleming, Ketcher, Bernal, Kerno, Mauser, Scott, Shoals, Tomlin, Townsend, Velasquez, and all of whom lost students in the massacre. The family of teacher Dave Sanders deserves your sympathy too. These people were lied to, lied about, and kept from the information and truth for years. They are innocent and so were their loved ones. They deserve your respect for the way they handled the tragedy and for how they have lived their lives since then. Some have tried to stop bullying, others have taken stands against gun laws, and all of them have demonstrated courage and dignity. They have raised funds for the library at Columbine and for the Columbine Memorial at a time when the sadness over Columbine winged. They were lied to by District Attorney Dave Thomas and many other members of the Jefferson County government. The children who were wounded that day, those who survived, deserve your sympathy. They have lived with courage. But do the Klebold and Harris families deserve your sympathy? Have they come forward and told the truth? No. Have they tried to help the victims or stop bullying or to raise money for the memorial or to help with rebuilding the library at Columbine or to help stop the next school shooting? 
no. Have they asked the federal judge who put a restraining order on many of the families and witnesses to release that order so those involved can tell the truth? No. Have they told their stories to experts who could take those stories, learn the truth and nuances about Aaron, Eric, and Dylan, and find a way to stop these killings from happening in the future? No. In fact, are the Harris and Klebold families any different than the Jefferson County employees who attended secret meetings a day after Columbine, the existence of which was exposed by the grand jury investigation? They have remained silent about the truth for 13 years. So have the Harris and Klebold families. They have fought to keep their depositions from being made public filing lawsuits that will keep that information secret for another 20 years 2027 almost here sympathy for the Harris and Klebold families yes for the loss of their children this was a preventable tragedy that could have been stopped but beyond that it is not enough to do a brief interview with an author who knows nothing of the background or depth of the Columbine tragedy the Harris and Klebold families had a responsibility to tell the truth and do what they could to stop future killings through education, profiling, and understanding. The interviews the Klebolds did with Andrew Solomon should not elicit sympathy or even understanding. I have sympathy for the parents who have subsequently lost children in the many sh school shootings since Columbine. I feel sorry for them because the truth that has been withheld for the past 13 years might have saved the lives of their innocent children. Randy Brown, 2012. Again, I believe, unless I'm misinformed, he and Judy Brown were present at the funeral for Dylan Klebold. And this is what he has to write. We'll keep all that in context as we proceed. Sue Klebold, Mother Superior, A Mother's Reckoning, Catherine Massey Book Club, audio segment one. Yes, in the video tape we see some of the people in the side throwing things at the officer. And swinging at them as well. Like there was a, a young woman there who, who took a swing at, at an officer with some object in her hand. This is Audible. Penguin Random House Audio presents A Mother's Reckoning Living in the Aftermath of Tragedy by Sue Klebold. Read by the author, with an introduction written and read by Andrew Solomon. To all who feel alone, hopeless, and desperate, even in the arms of those who love them. Introduction And must I indeed pain live with you all through my life, sharing my fire, my bed, 
sharing a worst of all things, the same head, and when I feed myself, feeding you too? Edna St. Vincent Millay We have consistently blamed parents for the apparent defects of their children. The 18th century theory of imaginationism held that children had deformities because of their mother's unexpressed lascivious longings. In the 20th century, homosexuality was said to be caused by overbearing mothers and passive fathers. Schizophrenia reflected the parents' unconscious wish that their child did not exist, and autism was the result of refrigerator mothers whose coldness doomed their children to a fortress of silence. We've now realized that such complex and overdetermined conditions are not the result of parental attitude or behavior. We nonetheless continue to assume that if you could only get inside the households in which killers were raised, you'd see the parents' errors writ large. The perception of children as tractable has been a hallmark of social justice. It has led us to seek rehabilitation for juveniles rather than simply punishment. According to this logic, a bad adult may be irrecoverably bad, but a bad kid is only a reflection of negative influences, the product of pliable nurture rather than immutable nature. There can be truth in that pleasant optimism, but to go from there to presuming parental culpability is a gross injustice. We cling to the notion that crime is the parent's fault for two primary reasons. First, it is clear that severe abuse and neglect can trigger aberrant behavior in vulnerable people. Poor parenting can push such children toward substance abuse, gang membership, domestic violence, and thievery. Attachment disorders are frequent in victims of childhood cruelty. So is a repetition compulsion that drives them to recapitulate the aggression they have known. Some parents damage their children, but that does not mean that all troubled children have incompetent parents. In particular, extreme, irrational crimes are not usually triggered by anything the parents have done. They come out of an illogic too profound to be instigated by trauma. Second, and far more powerfully, we want to believe that parents create criminals because in supposing that, we reassure ourselves that in our own house, where we are not doing such wrong things, we do not risk this calamity. I am aware of this delusion because it was mine. When I met Tom and Sue Klebold for the first time on February 19, 2005, I imagined that I would soon identify their flaws. I was working on a book, Far From the Tree, about parents and their challenging offspring, and I thought these parents would be emblematic of erroneous parenting. I never imagined they had egged their child onto heinous acts, but I did think that their story would illuminate innumerable clear mistakes. I didn't want to like the Klebolds because the cost of liking them would be an acknowledgement that what happened wasn't their fault. And if it wasn't their fault, none of us is safe. Alas, I like them very much indeed. 
So I came away thinking that the psychopathy behind the Columbine massacre could emerge in anyone's household. It would be impossible to predict or recognize. Like a tsunami, it would make a mockery of all our preparations. In Sue Klebold's telling, she was an ordinary suburban mother before Columbine. I didn't know her then, but in the wake of that tragedy she found the strength to extract wisdom from her devastation. To sustain your love in these circumstances is an act of courage. Her generosity in friendship, her lively gift for affection, and her capacity for attention, all of which I've been privileged to know, render the tragedy more bewildering. I started off thinking that the Klebolds should have disavowed their child, but I ended up understanding that it took far more steel to deplore what he had done, yet be unflagging in their love. Sue's passion for her son is evident in every one of these grief-stricken pages, and her book is a testament to complexity. She argues that good people do bad things, that all of us are morally confused, and that doing something terrible does not erase other acts and motives. The ultimate message of this book is terrifying. You may not know your own children, and worse yet, your children may be unknowable to you. The stranger you fear may be your own son or daughter. We read our children fairy tales and teach them that there are good guys and bad guys, Sue said to me when I was writing Far From the Tree. I would never do that now. I would say that every one of us has the capacity to be good and the capacity to make poor choices. If you love someone, you have to love both the good and the bad in them. At the time of Columbine, Sue worked in the same building as a parole office, and had felt alienated and frightened getting on the elevator with ex-convicts. After the tragedy, she saw them differently. I felt that they were just like my son, that they were just people who for some reason had made an awful choice and were thrown into a terrible, despairing situation. When I hear about terrorists in the news... I think, that's somebody's kid. Columbine made me feel more connected to mankind than anything else possibly could have. Bereavement can give its dupes great compassion. Two kinds of crime upset us more than any others. Crimes in which children are the victims, and crimes in which children are the perpetrators. In the first case, we mourn the innocent. In the second, our misapprehension that children are innocent. School shootings are the most appalling crimes of all, because they involve both problems, and among school shootings Columbine remained something of a gold standard, the ultimate exemplar to which all others are indebted. The extreme self-importance tinged with sadism, the randomness of the attack, and the scale of the advance planning 
have made Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold heroes to a large community of causeless young rebels. While they are hailed by most people as psychologically damaged, and by some religious communities as icons of Satanism. The boys' motives and purposes have been analyzed time and again by people who want to protect their children from such assaults. The most dauntless parents also wonder how to be certain that their children are incapable of committing such crimes. Better the enemy you know than the enemy you don't know, says the adage and Columbine was above all an ambush of unknowability, of horror hidden in plain sight. It has been impossible to see the killers clearly. We live in a society of blame, and some of the victims' families were relentless in their demand for impossible answers that were being kept hidden. The best evidence that the parents didn't know is the surety that if they had, they'd have done something. Jefferson County Magistrate John DeVita said of the two boys, What's mind-boggling is the amount of deception, the ease of their deception, the coolness of their deception. Most parents think they know their children better than they do. Children who don't want to be known can keep their inner lives very private. The victims' families' lawsuits were predicated on the dubious principles that human nature is knowable, that interior logic can be monitored, and that tragedies follow predictable patterns. They have sought some missing information that would change what happened. Jean-Paul Sartre once wrote, Evil is not an appearance, adding that knowing its causes does not dispel it. Sartre seems not to have been read very much in the Denver suburbs. Eric Harris appears to have been a homicidal psychopath, and Dylan Cleveland a suicidal depressive, and their disparate madnesses were each other's necessary condition. Dylan's depressiveness would not have turned into murderousness without Harris's leadership, but something in Eric might have lost motivation without the thrill of dragging Dylan down with him. Eric's malice is shocking. Dylan's acquiescence, equally so. Dylan wrote, Thinking of suicide gives me hope that I'll be in my place wherever I go after this life, that I'll finally not be at war with myself, the world, the universe, my mind, body, everywhere, everything is at peace. Me, my soul, existence. He described his own eternal suffering in infinite directions through infinite realities. The most common word in his journals is love. Eric wrote, How dare you think that I and you are part of the same species when we are so different? You aren't human. You are a robot, and if you pissed me off in the past, you will die if I see you. His journal describes how in some imagined collegiate future, he would have tricked girls to come to his room and rape them. Then, 
I want to tear a throat out with my own teeth like a pop can. I want to grab some weak little freshmen and just tear them apart like a fucking wolf, strangle them, squish their head, rip off their jaw, break their arms in half, show them who is God. Eric was a failed Hitler. Dylan was a failed Holden Caulfield. Sue Klebold emphasizes the suicidal element in her son's death. Carl Menninger, who has written extensively on suicide, said that it requires the coincidence of the wish to kill, the wish to be killed, and the wish to die. The wish to kill is not always directed outward, but it is an essential piece of the puzzle. Eric Harris wanted to kill, and Dylan Klebold wanted to die, and both thought their experience contained seeds of the divine. Both wrote of how the massacre would make them into gods. Their combination of grandiosity and ineptitude contains echoes of ordinary adolescence. In the commons at Columbine High School toward the end of the spree, a witness hiding in the cafeteria heard one of the killers say, Today the world's going to come to an end. Today's the day we die. This is an infantile conflation of the self with the other. G.K. Chesterton wrote, The man who kills a man kills a man. The man who kills himself kills all men. As far as he is concerned, he wipes out the world. Advocates for the mentally ill point out that most crime is not committed by people with mental illnesses, and that most people with mental illnesses do not commit crimes. What does it mean to consider Columbine as the product of minds that were not mentally ill? There are many crimes that people resist either because they know they'd get in trouble, or because they have learned moral standards. Most people have seen things they'd like to steal. Most people have felt an occasional flash of murderous rage towards someone with whom they are intimate. But the reasons for not killing kids you barely know at school and holding the place hostage is not that you fear punishment or grapple with received morality. It's that the whole idea never crosses healthy minds. Though he was depressed... Dylan did not have schizophrenia, PTSD, bipolar illness, or any other condition that fits the neat parameters of psychiatric diagnosis. The existence of disordered thinking does not mitigate the malevolence of Dylan's acts. Part of the nobility of this book is that it doesn't try to render what he did into sense. Sue Klebold's refusal to blame the bullies, the school, or her son's biochemistry, reflects her ultimate determination that one must simply accept what can never be explained away. She does not try to elucidate the permanently confused borderline between evil and disease. Immediately after the massacre, a carpenter from Chicago came to Littleton and erected fifteen crosses, one for each victim, including Dylan and Eric. Many people piled flowers at Eric's and Dylan's crosses, just as they did at the others. Brian Rohrbaugh, father of one of the victims, removed Harris's and Klebold's markers. 
You don't cheapen what Christ did for us by honoring murderers with crosses, he said. There's nowhere in the Bible that says to forgive an unrepentant murderer. You don't repent, you don't forgive them. That's what the Bible says. There is obviously scope for revising this interpretation of Christian doctrine, but Rohrbaugh's assertion hinges on the mistaken notion that mourning the deaths of the killers is tantamount to forgiveness, and that forgiveness conceals the horror of what was done. Sue Cleveland does not seek or even imagine forgiveness for her son. She explains that she didn't know what was happening, but she doesn't exonerate herself. She presents her not knowing as a betrayal of her son and the world. The death of someone who has committed a great crime may be for the best, but any dead child is some parent's vanquished hope. This mournful book is Sue's act of vicarious repentance. Hatred does not obliterate love. Indeed, the two are in constant fellowship. Sue told me at our first meeting about the moment on April 20th, 1999, when she'd learned what was happening at Columbine High School. While every other mother in Littleton was praying that her child was safe, I had to pray that mine would die before he hurt anyone else, she said. I thought if this was really happening, and he survived, he would go into the criminal justice system and be executed, and I couldn't bear to lose him twice. I gave the hardest prayer I ever made, that he would kill himself, because then at least I would know that he wanted to die, and I wouldn't be left with all the questions I'd have if he got caught by a police bullet. Maybe I was right, but I've spent so many hours regretting that prayer. I wished for my son to kill himself, and he did. At the end of that weekend, I asked Tom and Sue what they would want to ask Dylan if he were in the room with us. Tom said, I'd ask him what the hell he was thinking and what the hell he thought he was doing. Sue looked down at the floor for a minute before saying quietly, I would ask him to forgive me for being his mother and never knowing what was going on inside his head, for not being able to help him, for not being the person that he could confide in. When I reminded her of this conversation five years later, she said, When it first happened, I used to wish that I had never had children that I had never married. If Tom and I hadn't crossed paths at Ohio State, Dylan wouldn't have existed, and this terrible thing wouldn't have happened. But over time, I've come to feel that for myself. I'm glad I had kids, and glad I had the kids I did, because the love for them, even at the price of this pain, has been the single greatest joy of my life. When I say that, I'm speaking of my own pain, and not of the pain of other people. But I accept my own pain. Life is full of suffering, and this is mine. I know it would have been better for the world 
if Dylan had never been born. But I believe it would not have been better for me. We tend to lose someone all at once, but Sue's loss came in repeated waves. The loss of the boy himself, the loss of her image of him, the loss of her defenses against recognizing his darkest self, the loss of her identity as something other than the mother of a killer, and the loss of the fundamental belief that life is subject to logic, that if you do things right, you can forestall certain grim outcomes. Comparative grief is not a fruitful measurement, and it would be wrong to say that Sue Klebold's was the most chattering of all the losses in Littleton. But she is stuck with the impossibility of disentangling the pain of finding she had never known her son from the pain of knowing what devastation he caused others. She fights the sadness of a dead child, the sadness of the other dead children, and the sadness of having failed to bring up a happy child who makes the world better. It's a heady experience to have young children and be able to fix the little problems they bring to you. It's a terrible loss when they start to have problems beyond your ability to resolve. That universal disappointment is presented here on a vastly inflated scale. Sue Klebold describes her natural impulse to please people and makes it clear that writing has required a disavowal of that predilection. Her book is a tribute to Dylan without being an excuse, and a moving call to action for mental health advocacy and research. Moral, determined, and dignified, Sue Klebold has arrived at an impenetrable aloneness. No one else has had this experience. To some degree, it has made Sue unknowable, just as Dylan was. In writing of her experience, she has chosen a kind of public unknowability. Ovid delivered a famous injunction to welcome this pain, for you will learn from it. But there is little choice about such pain. You do not have the option of not welcoming it. You can express displeasure at its arrival, but you cannot ask it to leave the house. Sue Klebold has never complained of being a victim, but her narrative echoes that of Job, who says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And then, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, yet trouble came. And finally, though I speak, my grief is not assuaged. Sue Klebold's book narrates her Job-like descent into an incomprehensible hell, her divorce from safety. Perhaps most impressively, her book acknowledges that speech cannot assuage such grief. She doesn't even try. This book is not a cathartic document intended to make her feel better. It is only a narrative of acceptance and of fight, of harnessing her torment in hopes of sparing others pain like hers, 
like her sons, and like his victims. Andrew Solomon Preface On April 20, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold armed themselves with guns and explosives and walked into Columbine High School. They killed 12 students and a teacher and wounded 24 others before taking their own lives. It was the worst school shooting in history. Dylan Klebold was my son. I would give my life to reverse what happened that day. In fact, I would gladly give my own in exchange for just one of the lives that was lost. Yet I know that such a trade is impossible. Nothing I will ever be able to do or say can possibly atone for the massacre. Sixteen years have passed since that terrible day, and I have dedicated them to understanding what is still incomprehensible to me, how a promising boy's life could have escalated into such a disaster, and on my watch. I have interrogated experts, as well as our family, Dylan's friends, and, most of all, myself. What did I miss, and how could I have missed it? I have scoured my daily journals. I have analyzed our family life with the ferocity of a forensic scientist, turning over mundane events and exchanges in search of the clues I missed. What should I have seen? What could I have done differently? My quest for answers began as a purely personal mission, a primal need to know as strong as the shame and horror and grief that overwhelmed me. But I have come to see that the fragments I hold offer clues to a puzzle that many are desperate to solve. The hope that what I have learned may help has led me to the difficult but necessary step of going public with my story. There is a world between where I stand now and the view I had before Columbine, when our family life looked like that of a typical suburban American family. In more than a decade of searching through the wreckage, my eyes have opened not only to those things once hidden to me about Dylan and the events leading up to that day, but also to the realization that these insights have implications that extend far beyond Columbine. I'll never know whether I could have prevented my son's terrible role in the carnage that unfolded that day, but I have come to see things I wish I had done differently. These are small things, threads in the larger tapestry of a normal family's life. Because if anyone had peeked inside our lives before Columbine, I believe that what they would have seen, even with the tightest zoom lens, was thoroughly ordinary, no different from the lives unfolding in countless homes across the country. Tom and I were loving, attentive, and engaged parents, and Dylan was an enthusiastic, affectionate child. This wasn't a kid we worried and prayed over, hoping he would eventually find his way and lead a productive life. We called him the Sunshine Boy, not just because of his halo of blonde hair, but because everything seemed to come easily to him. I was grateful to be Dylan's mother and loved him with my whole heart and soul. The ordinariness of our lives before Columbine will perhaps be the hardest thing for people to understand about my story. For me, it is also the most important. Our home life was not difficult or fraught. 
Our youngest child was not a handful, let alone someone we or others who knew him would have imagined to be a risk to himself or to anyone else. I wish many things had been different, but most of all, I wish I had known it was possible for everything to seem fine with my son when it was not. When it comes to brain health issues, many of our children are as vulnerable today as children a hundred years ago were to infectious diseases. Far too often, as in our case, their susceptibility goes undetected. Whether a child flames out in a horrifying scenario, or whether their potential for happiness and productivity merely fizzles, this situation can be as confounding as it is heartbreaking. If we do not wake up to these vulnerabilities, the terrible toll will continue to rise, and that toll will be counted not just in tragedies such as Columbine or Virginia Tech or Newtown or Charleston, but in countless, quieter, slow-burning tragedies playing out every day in the family lives of our co-workers, friends, and loved ones. There is perhaps no harder truth for a parent to bear, but it is one that no parent on earth knows better than I do, and it is this. Love is not enough. My love for Dylan, though infinite, did not keep Dylan safe, nor did it save the thirteen people killed at Columbine High School or the many others injured and traumatized. I miss subtle signs of psychological deterioration that had I noticed might have made a difference for Dylan and his victims, all the difference in the world. By telling my story as faithfully as possible, even when it is unflattering to me, I hope to shine a light that will help other parents see past the faces their children present so that they can get them help if it is needed. Many of my own friends and colleagues have changed their parenting styles as a result of knowing our story. In some instances, their interventions have had dramatic results, as when a former colleague noticed that her 13-year-old daughter seemed slightly withdrawn. With Dylan in mind, she pressed and pressed and pressed. Eventually, her daughter broke down and confessed that a stranger had raped her while she was sneaking out to see a friend. The girl was deeply depressed and ashamed and afraid, and she was seriously considering taking her own life. My colleague was able to help her child because she noticed subtle changes and kept asking. I take heart in knowing that my colleague affected a happier ending for her daughter's story because she knew ours, and I believe only good can come from widening the circle of people who know it. It is not easy for me to come forward, but if the understanding and insights I have gained in the terrible crucible of Columbine can help, then I have a moral imperative to share them. Speaking out is frightening, but it is also the right thing to do. The list of things I would have done differently if I had known more is long. Those are my failures. But what I have learned implies the need for a broader call to action— a comprehensive overview of what should be in place to stop not only tragedies like the one committed by my son, but the hidden suffering of any child. Notes to the Listener The passages beginning many of the chapters are excerpts from my diaries. In the days after Columbine, I filled notebook after notebook with words 
in an effort to process my confusion and guilt and grief. Like most diaries, mine are unpublishable, but they are invaluable source material for this book. People refer to the fog of war, and I am sure something similar applies to my situation. If I hadn't kept a running record of the days, weeks, and years, the fog would have swallowed too much of the story for me to provide a reliable account. My journals serve as helpful reminders, not only of events and facts, but also of the phases of my own evolution. I am in a very different place than I was in the days following Columbine. It's not hyperbole to say I'm no longer the same person. The excerpts from my diaries provide a window into the immediate thoughts and feelings I was having as the events occurred, while the chapters incorporate the perspective that has come with the passage of time and a tremendous amount of research and self-reflection. Some of the names and identifying details in this book have been changed to protect people's privacy. In the process of writing this book, I interviewed many experts in fields ranging from law enforcement to threat assessment to journalistic ethics to sociology, psychology, psychiatry, and neurobiology. This book would not have been possible without their generosity and dedication to the spirit of inquiry. Part 1 The Last People on Earth Chapter 1 There's been a shooting at Columbine High School. April 20th, 1999, 12.05 p.m. I was in my office in downtown Denver, getting ready to leave for a meeting about college scholarships for students with disabilities, when I noticed the red message light on my desk phone flashing. I checked, on the off chance my meeting had been canceled, but the message was from my husband, Tom, his voice tight, ragged, urgent. Susan, this is an emergency. Call me back immediately. He didn't say anything more. He didn't have to. I knew just from the sound of his voice that something had happened to one of our boys. It felt as if it took hours for my shaking fingers to dial our home phone number. Panic crashed over me like a wave. My heart pounded in my ears. Our youngest son, Dylan, was at school. His older brother, Byron, was at work. Had there been an accident? Tom picked up and immediately yelled, Listen to the television! But I couldn't make out any distinct words. It terrified me that whatever had happened was big enough to be on TV. My fear, seconds earlier, of a car wreck suddenly seemed tame. Were we at war? Was the country under attack? What's happening? I screamed into the receiver. There was only static and indecipherable television noise on the other end. Tom came back on the line, finally, but my ordinarily steadfast husband sounded like a madman. The scrambled words pouring out of him in staccato bursts made no sense. Gunman. Shooter. School. I struggled to understand what Tom was telling me. Nate, Dylan's best friend, had called Tom's home office minutes before to ask, is Dylan home? A call like that in the middle of the school day would have been alarming enough, but the reason for Nate's call was every parent's worst nightmare come to life. Gunmen were shooting at people at Columbine High School, where Dylan was a senior. There was more. Nate had said the shooters had been wearing black trench coats like the one we'd bought for Dylan. I don't want to alarm you, he said to Tom, 
But I know all the kids who wear black coats, and the only ones I can't find are Dylan and Eric. They weren't in bowling this morning, either. Tom's voice was hoarse with fear as he told me he'd hung up with Nate and ripped the house apart looking for Dylan's trench coat, irrationally convinced that if he could find it, Dylan was fine. But the coat was gone, and Tom was frantic. I'm coming home, I said, panic numbing my spine. We hung up without saying goodbye. Helplessly fighting for composure, I asked a co-worker to cancel my meeting. Leaving the office, I found my hands shaking so uncontrollably that I had to steady my right hand with my left in order to press the button for my floor in the elevator. My fellow passengers were cheerfully chatting with one another on the way out to lunch. I explained my strange behavior by saying, There's been a shooting at Columbine High School. I have to go home and make sure my son's okay. A colleague offered to drive me home. Unable to speak further, I shook my head. As I got into the car, my mind raced. It didn't occur to me to turn on the radio. I was barely keeping the car safely on the road as it was. My one constant thought as I drove the 26 miles to our home, Dylan is in danger. Paroxysms of fear clutched at my chest as I sifted again and again through the same jagged fragments of information. The coat could be anywhere, I told myself, in Dylan's locker or in his car. Surely a teenager's missing coat didn't mean anything. Yet my sturdy, dependable husband had sounded close to hysterical. I'd never heard him like that before. The drive felt like an eternity, like I was traveling in slow motion, although my mind spun at lightning speed and my heart pounded in my ears. I kept trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together so it would come out okay, but there was little comfort to be found in the meager facts I had, and I knew I'd never recover if anything happened to Dylan. As I drove, I talked out loud to myself and burst into uncontrollable sobs. Analytic by nature, I tried to talk myself down. I didn't have enough information yet. Columbine High School was enormous, with more than 2,000 students. Just because Nate hadn't been able to find Dylan in the chaos didn't necessarily mean our son was hurt or dead. I had to stop allowing Tom's panic to infect me. Even as terror continued to roll over me in waves, I told myself we were probably freaking out unnecessarily, as any parent of an unaccounted-for child would in the same situation. Maybe no one was hurt. I was going to walk into our kitchen to find Dylan raiding our fridge, ready to tease me for overreacting. I nonetheless couldn't stop my mind from careening from one terrible scenario to another. Tom had said there were gunmen in the school. Palms sweaty on the wheel, I shook my head as if Tom were there to see. Gunmen? Maybe no one knew where Dylan was because he had been shot. Maybe he was lying injured or dead in the school building, trapped, unable to get word to us. Maybe he was being held hostage. The thought was so awful, I could barely breathe. But there was, too, a nagging tug at my stomach. I'd frozen in fear when I heard Tom mention Eric Harris. The one time Dylan had been in serious trouble, he'd been with Eric. I shook my head again. Dylan had always been a playful, loving child, and he'd grown into an even-tempered, sensible adolescent. He'd learned his lesson, I reassured myself. He wouldn't allow himself to get drawn into something stupid a second time. 
along with the dozens of other frightening scenarios whirling through my fevered brain. I wondered if the horror unfolding at the school might not be an innocently planned senior prank spun terribly out of hand. One thing was for sure. Dylan couldn't possibly have a gun. Tom and I were so adamantly anti-gun, we were considering moving away from Colorado because the laws were changing, making it easier to carry concealed firearms. No matter how hideously ill-conceived the stunt, there was no way Dylan would ever have gotten involved with a real gun, even as a joke. And so it went, for twenty-six long miles. One minute I was awash with images of Dylan hurt, wounded, crying out for help, and then I'd be flooded with happier snapshots. Dylan is a boy, blowing out his birthday candles, squealing with happy pleasure as he rode the plastic slide with his brother into the wading pool in the backyard. They say your life flashes before you when you die, but on that car ride home it was my son's life flashing before me, like a movie reel, each precious frame both breaking my heart and filling me with desperate hope. That hellish ride home was the first step in what would become a lifetime's work of coming to terms with the impossible. When I arrived home, my panic kicked into an even higher gear. Tom told me what he knew in spotty bursts, shooters at the school, Dylan and Eric still unaccounted for. Whatever was happening was serious. He'd called our older son Byron, who had said he would leave work and come to us immediately. Tom and I raced around the house like demented wind-up toys, flooded with adrenaline, unable to stop or to complete a task. Our wide-eyed pets crouched in the corners, alarmed. Tom was single-minded in his focus on the missing coat, but I was personally confounded by Nate saying Dylan had missed bowling. He'd left the house that morning with more than enough time to get there. He'd said goodbye as he left. Thinking about it, I found myself haunted by the peculiar nature of that farewell. That morning, the morning of April 20th, my alarm had gone off before first light. As I dressed for work, I watched the clock. Knowing how much Dylan hated to get up early, Tom and I had tried to talk him out of signing up for a 6.15 a.m. bowling class. But Dylan prevailed. It would be fun, he said. He loved bowling, and some of his friends were taking the class. Throughout the semester, he'd done a good job of getting himself to the alley on time. Not a perfect record, but nearly. Still, I needed to keep an eye on the time. No matter how dutifully he set his alarm, on bowling mornings Dylan usually needed an extra call-out from me at the bottom of the stairs to get him out of bed. But on the morning of April 20th, I was still getting dressed when I heard Dylan bounding heavily down the stairs, past our closed bedroom door on the main floor. It surprised me that he was up and dressed so early without prompting. He was moving quickly and seemed to be in a hurry to leave, though he had plenty of time to sleep a little more. We always coordinated our plans for the day, so I opened the bedroom door and leaned out. Dill? I called. The rest of the house was too dark for me to see anything, but I heard the front door open. Out of the blackness, his voice sharp and decisive, I heard my son yell, Bye! And then the front door shut firmly behind him. He was gone before I could even turn on the hallway light. Unsettled by the exchange, I turned back to the bed and woke Tom. 
There had been an edge to Dylan's voice in that single word I'd never heard before. A sneer, almost, as if he'd been caught in the middle of a fight with someone. It wasn't the first sign we'd had that week to indicate Dylan was under some stress. Two days before, on Sunday, Tom had asked me, Have you noticed Dylan's voice lately? The pitch of it is tight and higher than usual. Tom gestured toward his vocal cords with his thumb and middle finger. His voice goes up like that when he's tense. I think something may be bothering him. Tom's instincts about the boys had always been excellent, and we agreed to sit down with Dylan to see if something was on his mind. It certainly made sense that Dylan would be feeling some anxiety as his high school graduation loomed. Three weeks before, we'd gone to visit his first-choice college, the University of Arizona. Though Dylan was highly independent, leaving the state for school would be a big adjustment for a kid who'd never been away from home. But I was unsettled by the tight quality I'd heard in Dylan's voice when he said goodbye, and it bugged me that he hadn't stopped to share his plans for the day. We hadn't yet had the chance to sit down and talk with him, as Dylan had spent most of the weekend with various friends. I think you were right on Sunday, I told my sleepy husband. Something is bothering Dylan. From bed, Tom reassured me. I'll talk to him as soon as he gets home. Because Tom worked from home, the two of them usually shared the sports section and had a snack together when Dylan got back from school. I relaxed and continued to get ready for work as usual, relieved to know that by the time I arrived home, Tom would know if something was bothering Dylan. In the wake of Nate's phone call, though, as I stood in our kitchen trying to piece together the fragments of information we had, I felt chilled by the memory of the nasty, hard flatness in Dylan's voice as he'd said goodbye that morning, and the fact that he'd left early but hadn't made it to class. I'd figured he was meeting someone early for coffee, maybe even to talk through whatever was bugging him. But if he hadn't made it to bowling, then where on earth had he been? The bottom didn't fall out from my world until the telephone rang, and Tom ran into the kitchen to answer it. It was a lawyer. My fears so far had been dominated by the possibility that Dylan was in danger, that either he'd been physically hurt or done something stupid, something that would get him into trouble. Now I understood that Tom's fears also included something for which Dylan could need a lawyer. Dylan had gotten into trouble with Eric in his junior year. The episode had given us the shock of our lives, our well-mannered, organized kid, the kid we'd never had to worry about, had broken into a parked van and stolen some electronic equipment. As a result, Dylan had been put on probation. He'd completed a diversion program, which allowed him to avoid any criminal charges. In fact, he'd graduated early from the course, an unusual occurrence, we were told and with glowing praise from the counselor. Everyone had told us not to make too much of the incident. Dylan was a good kid, and even the best teenage boys had been known to make colossally stupid mistakes. But we'd also been warned that a single misstep, even shaving cream on a banister, would mean a felony charge and jail time. And so, at the first indication that Dylan might be in trouble, Tom had contacted a highly recommended defense attorney. While part of me was incredulous that Tom imagined Dylan could be involved in whatever was happening at the school, another part of me felt grateful. In spite of Tom's worry, 
he'd had the foresight to be proactive. I was still miles away from the idea that people might actually be hurt, or that they'd been hurt by my son's hand. I was simply worried that Dylan, in the service of some dumb practical joke, might have jeopardized his future by carelessly throwing away the second chance he'd been given with the successful completion of his diversion program. The call, of course, brought much, much worse news. The lawyer Tom had contacted, Gary Lozo, had reached out to the sheriff's office. He was calling back to tell Tom the unthinkable was now confirmed. Although reports were still wildly contradictory, there was no doubt something terrible involving gunmen was happening at Columbine High School. The district attorney's office had confirmed to Gary Lozo that they suspected Dylan was one of the gunmen. The police were on their way to our home. When Tom hung up the phone, we stared at each other in stunned horror and disbelief. What I was hearing couldn't possibly be true. And yet it was. And yet it couldn't possibly be. Even the most nightmarish, worst-case scenarios I'd played out in my mind during the car ride home paled with the reality now emerging. I'd been worried Dylan was in danger or had done something childish to get himself into trouble. And now it appeared that people had been hurt because of what he was doing. This was real. It was happening. Still, I could not get my brain to grasp what I was hearing. Then Tom told me he was going to try to get into the school. I yelled, No, are you crazy? You could get killed. He looked at me steadily, and then he said, So? All of the noisy confusion swirling around us came to a dead stop as we stared at each other. After a moment, I bit back my protests and turned away. Tom was right. Even if he died, at least we'd be sure he'd done everything he could to stop whatever was happening. Shortly after one o'clock, I called my sister, my fingers shaking as I dialed. My parents were both dead, but my older sister and younger brother lived near each other in another state. My entire life, my sister has been the one I reach out to when things are going well and the one I reach out to when they aren't. She has always taken care of me. The minute I heard her voice, whatever composure I'd been maintaining collapsed, and I burst into tears. Something horrible is happening at the school. I don't know if Dylan is hurting people or if he's hurt. They're saying he's involved. There was nothing Diane could say to stem my tears, but she did promise to call our brother and the rest of the family. We're here for you, she said fiercely as we said goodbye, so I could keep the line free. I had no idea then how much I would need her over the years to come. By the time our older son Byron arrived, my frenzied attempts to do something, anything, had ground to a halt, and I was sitting at the kitchen counter, sobbing into a dish towel. As soon as Byron put his arms around me, every ounce of strength left my body, and I collapsed so he was holding me up more than he was hugging me. How could he do this? How could he do this? I kept asking. I had no idea what this was. Byron shook his head in silent disbelief, his arms still around me. There was nothing to say. Part of me thought, I'm his mother. I should pull myself together, be a role model here, be strong for Byron. But it was impossible for me to do anything other than weep helplessly a rag doll in my son's arms. The police began to arrive, and they escorted us out of the house to wait in the driveway. 
It was a beautiful day, sunny and warm, the kind of day that makes you feel like spring might finally be here to stay. Under other circumstances, I'd be rejoicing we'd survived another long Colorado winter. Instead, the beauty of the weather felt like a slap in the face. What are they looking for? What do they want? I kept asking. Can we help? Eventually, an officer told us they were searching our house and our tenant's apartment for explosives. It was the first time we'd heard anything about explosives. We could find out nothing more. We were not allowed into our house without a police escort. Tom would not be permitted to go to the school or anywhere else. Later, we learned that no one had been allowed in the school. The first responders hadn't entered the building until long after Dylan and Eric were dead, surrounded by the bodies of their victims. As we stood there waiting in the sunny driveway, I noticed that three or four of the officers were wearing SWAT team uniforms and what appeared to be bulletproof vests. The sight of them was more puzzling than alarming. Why were they at our house instead of at the school? They crouched and entered our home through the front door, their guns drawn and held at arm's length with both hands as if in a movie. Did they think we were harboring Dylan? Or that Tom and I would somehow be a danger to them? It was completely surreal, and I thought very clearly, we are the last people on earth anyone would expect to be in this situation. We spent hours pacing the driveway like frightened animals. Byron was still smoking then, and I watched him light cigarette after cigarette, too overwhelmed to protest. The police would not engage with us, though we begged for information. What had happened? How did they know Dylan was a suspect? How many gunmen were there? Where was Dylan? Was he okay? Nobody would tell us a thing. Time warped as it does in emergencies. Media and police helicopters began circling noisily overhead. Our tenant, Allison, who lived in the studio outbuilding on our property, brought us bottles of water and granola bars we couldn't bear to eat. If we needed to use the bathroom, we did so with two armed policemen guarding the other side of the door. I wasn't sure if they were protecting us or if we were suspects. Both options horrified me. I'd never done anything illegal in my life, and it had never, ever occurred to me to be afraid of my son. As the afternoon stretched on, we continued to pace the driveway. Conversation was impossible. The Rocky Mountain foothills surrounding our home had always soothed me. Tom and I often said we didn't feel any need to travel because we already lived in the most beautiful place on earth. But that afternoon, the tall stone cliffs seemed cold and forbidding, prison walls around our home. I looked up to see a figure coming up the driveway. It was Judy Brown, the mother of one of Dylan's childhood friends, Brooks. Alerted by the Littleton rumor mill that Dylan was involved in the events at the school, she had come to our house. I was startled to see her. Our boys had been good friends in first and second grades, and then reunited in high school, but they hadn't been close, and I'd only seen Judy a few times in the years since elementary school. We'd chatted warmly a few weeks before, at a school event, but we'd never done anything together except when our boys were involved, and I wasn't sure I could manage any social niceties. I was too disoriented to question why she was there but it did seem odd for her to have materialized during this most private of times. 
She and Allison sat on either side of me on our brick sidewalk, urging me to drink the water they'd brought. Tom and Byron paced up and down the front walk with brooding expressions as we all struggled with our own splintered thoughts. My mind was a chaotic swirl. There was no way to square the information we had with what I knew about my life and about my son. They couldn't be talking about Dylan, our sunshine boy. Such a good kid, he always made me feel like a good mother. If it was true that Dylan had intentionally hurt people, then where in his life had this come from? Eventually, the detective in charge told us he wanted to interview each of us separately. Tom and I were happy and eager to cooperate, especially if there was anything we could do to shed light on whatever was happening. My interview took place in the front seat of the detective's car. It's unthinkable now, but during that interview, I really believed I could straighten the whole mess out if I could only explain why everything they were thinking about Dylan was wrong. I did not realize I had entered a new phase in my life. I still thought the order of the world as I'd known it could be restored. I pressed my trembling hands together to still them. Solemn and intimidating, the detective got right to the point. Did we keep any weapons in our home? Had Dylan been interested in weapons or in explosives? I had little of relevance to share with him. Tom and I had never owned any guns. BB guns were standard fare for young boys where we lived, but we'd bucked the trend for as long as we could, and then made our kids create and sign handwritten safety contracts before giving in. They'd used the BBs for target practice for a while, but by the time Dylan was a young teenager, the air rifles had found their way to a shelf in the garage with the model airplanes and G.I. Joe action figures and the other forgotten relics of the boys' childhoods. I remembered aloud that Dylan had asked the year before if I would consider buying him a gun for Christmas. The request was made in passing and came out of the blue. Surprised, I had asked why he wanted a gun, and he'd told me it would be fun to go to a shooting range sometime for target practice. Dylan knew how avidly anti-gun I was, so the request had taken me aback. Even though we'd moved to a rural area where hunting and hanging out at the shooting range were popular pastimes. As alien as it might have been to me personally, guns were an accepted part of the culture where we lived, and many of our neighbors and friends in Colorado were recreational firearm enthusiasts, so while I would never allow a gun under our roof, Dylan's request for one didn't set off any special alarm bells. I'd suggested we search for his old BB gun instead. Dylan rolled his eyes, a teasing smile on his face. Moms. It's not the same thing, he said, and I shook my head decisively. I can't imagine why you'd want a gun, and you know how your dad and I feel about them. You're going to be 18 shortly, and if you really want one, you can get one for yourself then. But you know I would never, ever buy you a gun. Dylan nodded fondly at me and smiled. Yeah, I knew you'd say that. I just thought I'd ask. There was no intensity to the request, and no animosity when I dismissed it. He never mentioned a gun to me again and I filed it in the same category as the other outlandish Christmas requests he'd made over the years. He hadn't seriously thought we were going to get him a muscle car or gliding lessons, either. The detective had another question. 
was Dylan interested in explosives? I thought he was asking about firecrackers, and I answered truthfully. Dylan did like those. He'd accepted fireworks as payment when he'd worked at a fireworks display stand, one of his first summer jobs. It's legal to sell them in Colorado. So he had a lot of them, which he kept safely stored in a big rubber bin in the garage. He set the firecrackers off on the 4th of July and enjoyed them. The rest of the year, they sat in the bin in the garage, forgotten. Dylan was a collector of a lot of things. I hadn't heard anything yet about propane tanks or pipe bombs, so I had no idea what the detective was really asking me. I felt small and frightened in the front seat of the detective's car, but I was dedicated to answering his questions fully and truthfully. When he asked if I had ever seen any gun catalogs or magazines around the house, his question jarred something loose in my memory. A few catalogs with guns on the cover had arrived in the stacks of unwanted junk mail we received on a daily basis. I hadn't paid any more attention to them than I had to the catalogs advertising personalized baby clothes or orthopedic devices for the elderly, and had thrown them away without looking at them. Dylan had pulled one of those catalogs out of the trash. He'd been looking for a pair of heavy-duty work boots to fit his large feet, and he found a pair of boots he liked in the catalog. When we learned they didn't carry his size, I threw the catalog away a second time. He'd eventually found a pair of boots at an army surplus store. I felt like the detective was looking at me with knowing eyes. Gotcha. Suddenly defensive and self-conscious. I heard myself begin to babble, trying to get this police officer to understand how many catalogs came every day and why I hadn't checked the addressee. I thought he'd understand if only I could make myself heard. I had always relied on my aptitude for addressing problems logically and on my ability to communicate effectively. I did not yet understand, and would not for some time, that my version of reality was the one out of sync. The detective asked about recent events, and I told him everything I could remember. A few weeks earlier, we'd visited the University of Arizona. Dylan had been accepted, and we wanted him to be able to plant his feet on the ground of his number one pick to make sure the fit felt right. Just three days before, Dylan, handsome in a tuxedo, had posed with his prom date, smiling awkwardly while we snapped a picture. How could that boy be the one they were accusing? But there was no answer forthcoming, nor any hope. The interview was over. As I climbed out of the detective's car, I felt as if I were about to explode into a thousand pieces, bits of me spinning out into the stratosphere. We still weren't permitted into the house. Tom and Byron were still pacing the driveway. A police officer told us the investigators were waiting for the bomb squad, a piece of information that only added to our terror and confusion. Were they looking for a bomb? Had our home been booby-trapped by someone Dylan knew? But nobody would answer any of our questions, and we couldn't tell if this was because they didn't yet know exactly what had happened or because we were suspects. Because we had been standing for so long in our driveway— Cut off from any media or news updates, we probably knew less than anyone else in Littleton, or the rest of the world for that matter, about what was going on. Cell phones were not yet as ubiquitous as they are now. Although Tom had one for work, its signal was blocked by the sandstone cliffs surrounding our house. 
The police had commandeered our home phone. Frightened and bewildered, all we could do was pray for our son. We waited outside in the sun, perched on concrete steps or leaning against parked cars. Judy approached me. Dropping her voice confidentially, she told me about a violent website Eric had made. Still out of my mind with worry about Dylan, I didn't understand why she was telling me about it, until I did. She'd known Eric was disturbed and dangerous for a long time. Why didn't you tell me, I asked, genuinely baffled. She'd told the police, she said. The house phone rang constantly. The detective called me to the phone to speak to my elderly aunt. She'd heard about a shooting in Littleton. Dylan's name had not yet been mentioned on air. She was in frail health, and I worried about telling her the truth, but realized that protecting her would soon be impossible. I said as gently as possible, Please prepare yourself for the worst. The police are here. They think Dylan is involved. As she protested, I repeated what I had already said. What had been inconceivable hours before had already begun to solidify into a new and horrible reality. Just as nebulous shapes resolve into letters and numbers with every progressive click of the machine at the eye doctor's, so was the magnitude of the horror starting to come into focus for me. Everything was still in incomprehensible blur, but I already knew two things. This would not be the case for much longer, and the confusion was resolving into a truth I did not believe I could bear. I promised my aunt I would be in touch and hung up to keep the line open for communication from the school. As the shadows lengthened, time slowed. Tom and I muddled through our uncertainty in hushed whispers. We had no choice but to accept Dylan's involvement, but neither of us could believe he had participated in a shooting under his own free will. He must have become mixed up with a criminal somehow or a group of them who forced him to participate. We even considered that someone had threatened to harm us, and he had gone along in order to protect us. Maybe he had gone into the school thinking it was a harmless joke, some kind of theater, only to learn at the last minute he was using live ammunition. I simply could not, would not believe Dylan participated voluntarily in hurting people. If he had, the kind, funny, goofy kid that we love so much must have been tricked, threatened, coerced, or even drugged into doing it. Later, we would learn that Dylan's friends spun similar explanations for the events unfurling around them. Not one of them considered he might willingly be involved. None of us would learn the true level of his involvement or the depths of his rage, alienation, and despair until many months later. Even then, many of us would struggle to reconcile the person we knew and loved with what he'd done that day. We stayed out there in the driveway, suspended in limbo, the passing hours marked only by our helpless confusion as we careened from hope to dread. The phone rang and rang and rang. Then the glass storm door of our house once again swung open, and this time I could hear the television Tom had left on in our bedroom echoing inside the empty rooms. A local news anchor was reporting from outside Columbine High School. I heard him say the latest reports had 25 people dead. Like mothers all over Littleton, I had been praying for my son's safety. 
But when I heard the newscaster pronounce 25 people dead, my prayers changed. If Dylan was involved in hurting or killing other people, he had to be stopped. As a mother, this was the most difficult prayer I had ever spoken in the silence of my thoughts. But in that instant, I knew the greatest mercy I could pray for was not my son's safety, but for his death. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. Uh, so that is audio segment number one, Sue Klebold. Mm. I'm so glad. This is Alice Siebold. I don't know. Jeffrey Tubin. This is one I'm very thankful that I'm a little bit more informed about things before reading this book. Number to dial 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you prefer to email your commentary, the email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com can read your anonymous thoughts as we proceed. Uh, I guess for one, do we think old Sue Klebold do we think there are any deliberate lies in the book that's something to kind of keep in mind for the duration what we've heard thus far we've only heard like a teaspoon of the book like the introduction preface in chapter one so we've heard very little but do we think deliberate lies that's one and then specifically I asked a question or a poll rather uh, it's on my Twitter, love that social media at Until Justice. So why do we think? What's the the primary motivation? People can do things for a, a confluence of reasons, right? Everybody. But what do we think is the primary motivator for why old Sue Klebold? Why did she write this here book? And I gave four possibilities. There could be others, but these were four that I thought of at the time. If you think of a, a different one, you can share that one as well. The four that I thought of. Cash in no particular order. Cash, deflect blame, attention, uh, what I say when I mean uh, attention, meaning, hey, with kind of the same thing like with uh, her offspring, uh, I can get on Oprah, Diane Sawyer, come talk to me, do the book show circuit. She has a number on there uh, for speaking engagements and such, come out and talk about mental illness and suicide, all that good stuff. So attention and then guilt now I said those are just the four that I thought of I'm sure there could be other reasons but what do we think is the primary reason why did Sue Klebold pen this book 
we'll kind of ponder on that one as we proceed. Let's see. We'll hit the phone line first, see if folks have commentary, and then I'll share some of the emails, kind of sprinkle those in as we proceed. Let's see. Folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Victim in New Jersey. Yeah, hey, Gus. Uh, that that introduction was um, it was hard to <laughs> it, it was hard to listen to, and it's kind of like you know it's uh you know like no no name call. I mean even uh, with suspected races, but I just couldn't help just to think. I said, you know what? Honestly, make an exception today. First thing that just came to my mind was this woman is such a good guy. Um, and that'll be my last name call of this woman. Um, the introduction. The judge mentioned deception as they talked about these two killers. From the book we just read, there was no deception. Those these two killers was who they were. Um, the introduction, they talked, uh, the author or uh, the guy that, whoever wrote the introduction talked about how Clebo, uh, she automatically went into uh, uh, Harris um, dragging her son down a metaphor, her son was dragged down by Harris, uh, went into her son, was depressed. Uh, he wanted, so Harris wanted to kill, the Klebold killer wanted to die. Okay. Um, they kind of, not even kind of, but they're interjecting missing health issues. But in the introduction, um, Dylan had no mental diagnosis. Oh, they mentioned the clout-chasing white man in the beginning of the introduction. Void of context. But they mentioned the clout-chasing white man. And I think that was purposely put there to uh, to uh, bring, I guess, to uh, highlight the humanity of her son, the killer. Um, Isaiah Scholl's family was mistreated, but this woman is writing books, memoirs, and giving interviews. Um, a black mom couldn't have wrote this book. This book will be banned in Ron DeSantis in Florida. Um, again, alluding to brain issues, you know, trying to, you know, because the subconscious mind, you know, it, it's real. I'm, and I'm not, you know, I'm far from uh, uh, Ben Carson. You know, uh, or, or any other 
medical experts, you know, whether it's dealing with the heart or the brain. But from what I read and what I've heard about subconscious mind, it picks up on those messages. You know, so now you you're disarmed and you start to sympathize with Mama Clebo and in turn you start to oh you know, oh yeah, you know, yeah, Dylan, you know, he 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 may have been a victim too. And but but he's not a victim. Um Nate, I'm not sure if this best friend Nate, I don't remember what he mentioned in the last book. But if my brain computer was working well, Nate called already thinking that Dylan was one of the suspects, one of the shooters. And she, you know what I mean? So, so the father kind of, the father acknowledged that, and the mother was aware of that as they were searching for the coat, and she still kind of, some cognitive dissonance there, she's still kind of like thinking her son was the victim while looking for the coat. When, if, if, if memory serves me correct, the first initial call was implicating him as one of the shooters. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, looking back by the clout-chasing white man being entered, being talked about at the beginning of this book. But uh, this is going to be a classic examination, not only of white people, but of white women. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in. Uh, I'm wounded. Yes, yes, we have the white man who built the crosses um, that I do remember seeing but I did not know that this was just a big stunt clout chasing I had no idea until we read Dave Cullen's book and then to have that pop up right at, that almost is kind of like what do they call it an, an omen <laughs> we need to have to have that in but I mean at this late date, so this is 2016, so at this point, you spoke to all these experts, you should know, like, ooh, these crosses, oh, that's, maybe we'll pick something else. Maybe, maybe we don't take the, the clout-chasing white man. <laughs> that's why I said, I'm so glad we're reading this book now. We are more informed, because yes, we have heard Nick Dightman before. Yes, we heard all that. Dave Cullen, Nate calls like, uh oh, they weren't at bowling. Oh, Mike Moore, they weren't at bowling. Uh oh, they said they had trench coats. I know somebody who got trench coats. Uh oh, you seen old Dill? Yes, we heard all that. Uh, let's see. The. Oh, and the. <laughs> If a black person, I've been bringing that point up repeatedly. If Jamal and Leroy had done all of this, you could wait 16 years, 60 years, 6,000 years. There is no 
way in the Christ. A black mother or father is we're going to hook you up with a book deal, get a best-selling expert to come write you an amazing introduction, get you so much sympathy, get you, hook you up so that you can be on the road to having a New York Times bestseller where we sympathize with you as the Negro parent of some Negro child who killed 13 people, many of them children. Anyway, she wants to do all this talking uh, about brain science and such. Someone has been talking all year long about the Brain Science Convention in Washington, D.C. Yes, registration early. Registration just opened. If folks think that would be constructive for Gus T to go attend snoop around see if we can maybe do some programs while we are there let me know invest we'll see if we can hang out for november but lots of i feel like since i've been talking about all of that in november of last year it's come up on a pretty regular basis in some surprising ways once again all right let's see uh Let's see. We'll get the other folks who called in. Uh, let's see. Email until justice at gmail.com. Lauren with us as well. Uh, commentary to share. Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, my notes aren't really organized today, so you're going to have to forgive me for that. Um, I noticed it's, well, it seems like the preface was omitted from the audio book. Um, so that preface was pretty interesting to me. It was about four and a half pages. Um, she talked about, uh, Dylan being released from the diversion program early that was also in Columbine. And it made me wonder what the racial classifications of the 5% of people who are um question what is the primary motivation for sue clevo writing this book um right now the answer is i don't know but i do think um cash to deflect blame and attention are reasonable answers to that question guilt i, I don't know i i'm not convinced she feels guilty um so i don't know if that, if that's what you meant um it also talks about sue klebold's uh job like descent into an incomprehensible hell uh dylan compared himself to job in his writings also um talked about so it must have been that part at the beginning by, oh man, I think his name was Andrew Andrew Solomon. Um, it said that the book was noble. Uh, kind of misplaced it, but somewhere it, it said the book was noble. I didn't really, I don't know what that means. I'm going to have to look that word up. 
definition of noble um, syncs up to what we read in the book. Um, let me see. I'm, I'm not organized over here. Um, I, I just feel like Sue Klebold. No, nah, I don't want to say I feel like. I think Sue Klebold is trying to get people to feel sorry for her um, with this book. And uh, I don't know if she's trying to make it seem like she's a victim, too. Mm, I'm going to have to think about that, but that's a distinct possibility. And there was another part where it said good people do bad things. Um, well, it was uh, Andrew Solomon must have said it. So she argues that good people do bad things, that all of us are morally confused, and that doing something terrible does not erase other acts and motives. Well, if a good person does bad things, I guess I need to understand, well, I need a definition for what good is. People use these terms all the time, good and bad. Um, people won't really tell me what they mean. It seems people use that term good to mean desirable, but um, people don't agree on these things. One person will think one thing is desirable, and it's not desirable to another person. And if a good person does a bad thing, what's the difference between a bad person and a good person? I just, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, there was another part. Let me see. The extreme self-importance tinge with sadism, the randomness of the attack, and the scale of the advanced planning have made Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold heroes to a large community of causeless young rebels. Um, I think that was a reference to the movie Rebel Without a Cause. Um, lots of people tried to emulate James Dean or just admired that movie character. So, I don't know. I kind of think that's incorrect. Um, another part where it says Sue Klebold emphasizes the suicidal element of her son's death. Carl Menninger, who has written extensively on suicide, said that it requires the coincidence of the wish to kill, the wish to be killed, and the wish to die. I, I have to think about that, too. I'm I'm not certain it's true. I, I just need to give it some further thought, but it um, uh, it stood out to me. Um, oh, I found the nobility part. Um, the existence of disordered thinking does not mitigate the malevolence of Dylan's acts. Part of the nobility of this book is that it doesn't try to render what he did into sense. So the nobility of this book, that's interesting. I, I don't know if that's accurate. Um, actually says Sue Klebold has never complained of being a victim, but her narrative echoes that of Job, who says, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? It does seem like she's trying to get people to feel pity for her, um, and it seems like that the whole book. I know we're at the beginning, but I kind of read ahead, and uh, wow, it's, uh, it's persistent, and it continues. Um, oh, Okay, there's another part. It says the lawyer Tom had contacted, Gary, I think Lozo, I'm not sure if that's how it was said, had reached out to the sheriff's office. He was calling back to tell Tom the unthinkable was now confirmed. 
Although reports were wildly contradictory, there was no doubt something terrible involving gunmen was happening at Columbine High School. The district attorney's office had confirmed to Carrie Lozo that they suspected Dylan was one of the gunmen, but the police were on their way to our home. Now, with all of this stuff going on, this lady still got advance notice. Well, not just her, her and her husband their way. It just made me wonder how many times are the police on the way to non-white people's houses and we get some sort of advance warning. I just don't think that happens that much. But I think it's um, uh, commonplace with people who classify themselves as white. Um, I noticed the part about the gun catalog that she threw away. I think I would have looked at the name on that, but I do get a lot of catalogs at the house that I throw away, but there are catalogs that I've seen before. I, if a gun catalog came to my house, I think I would pay just a little bit more attention to it. Um, and that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, Lauren. Uh, in terms of patterns, I will say that is a mega, mega, mega trend. Uh, I keep bringing up that these are bombings. Uh, in terms of Columbine and Eric Rudolph with the Olympics and Timothy McVeigh, that these are bombings. Woo. There, that is with Waco. That's in there too. April 19th, that date. Uh, and bomb. They were making. That's the whole reason that started. Guns. Even that. Eric uh, Harris in his journal was complaining about the Brady Bill. Right. We remember that. He. We need guns. Brady Bill, no count keeping me from getting my guns and all that. So he talked about that explicitly. That's Waco. They were illegal guns, getting automatic firearms and what have you, uh, and making bombs. I didn't even know that. Making bombs, and they even threw explosive devices at the ATF agents, federal agents, when they came to serve their warrant for these illegal firearms. But they got tipped off. That was how they lost the advantage. The agents were going to go, and they got tipped off. That's in uh, the book we read on Timothy McVeigh, Andrew uh, Gumbel. It's in there. They were going to serve a raid. They were going to arrest German white man. He's not even a citizen, uh, Andreas Strassmier. I think that's his name. They were going to arrest him. He got tipped off. They keep saying that over. And it's like, how did they get all these? Do they have homies who work like with the enforcement officers? Like, do they have friends? Like what? How do they keep getting all of these advance warnings so that they could even Eric Rudolph? They were going to apprehend him because he was on the lamb, as they say, for years before they caught him. He apparently got tipped off. They said they went there and literally it looked like he was just there. And somebody got a call. Eric. Get out of here, man. And he absconded for years. I don't think Leroy and Jamal, there we go, another one. I don't think Leroy and Jamal, they appear, I don't think they get the uh, heads up. Might be true. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Uh, yeah. Okie dokes. Let's see. Uh, email, number one. <clears throat> Preface, Andrew Solomon. That's the fellow you all were talking about who wrote the preface, Andrew Solomon. I don't know. Nobody said anything about it, so I'm saying it again just for emphasis now that we've heard all this. Dave Cullen, white man classified as gay, 
Andrew Solomon, white man, classified as gay. Hmm. Hmm. All right, so preface. Number one, Klebold's. I like them very much. I came away thinking the psychopathy of Columbine behind the Columbine massacre could emerge in anyone's household. The ultimate message of this book is terrifying. Uh, from the very start of the text, they are arguing that the Klebold's bear no responsibility. And, and parents in general, even that, I think when we spoke with Jeff Cass on mo- uh, Monday, yeah, I had it right. He said... Uh, the attorney, Michael Eager, if I'm saying it correctly, that he said, hey, any other time I'm representing a Negro client and it is these deadbeat, no count, lazy Negro dads and no count welfare moms and they need to take care of their children. And bing, bing, bing. That's what I hear. Now you got some white children who have run wild and it's whoa, 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 whoa. Now we can't be blaming the parents now he said whoa that's not what you said that's not what you said you're supposed to be consistent number two eric harris homicidal psychopath dylan klebold suicidal depressive eric was a failed hitler dylan was a failed holden caulfield Hmm. interesting use of metaphor two listeners point out metaphors what is going on uh, they were both psychopaths, albeit brief. They didn't live too long. <laughs> Harris did commit a notorious act of terror. Both committed suicide and both continued to be revered by many worldwide. Holden Caulfield is the iconic teenage anti-hero of the book Catcher in the Rye. Anti-hero being a protagonist who has no heroic qualities. Klebold seems to have all the characteristics of the anti-hero, albeit a violent one. He was described as intelligent, handsome, charming, wholesome even. Uh, in, in fact, there are entire reports, dissertations, that that is the subject. The rise of the white, violent anti-hero, and they put... Columbine, the movie falling down that I mentioned, Breaking Bad. They just run right down the line in the same type and real life. Timothy McVeigh, they name all the people that I named. Timothy McVeigh, Eric Rudolph, and the same intelligent, rugged, handsome, manly, Ted Kaczynski, all of them, they put them all together, they're people literally, and it should be tons of reports like real, hey, what does it mean to be white, and we've had listeners say, hey, uh, so if the true crime community is all white women, so are they responsible for producing the white men who behave like this, mother superior, We'll keep reading. Number three, her book is a tribute to Dylan without being an excuse. I guess we will see if they succeed in this. Preface, Sue, I'll never know whether I could have prevented my son's terror. Oh, we didn't hear this part. I think uh, Lauren just pointed that out. So Uh, I'll never know whatever I could have prevented my son's terrible role. But I have come to see things I wish I had done differently. Small things, tapestry of normal family life. Anyone peeked inside our lives before Columbine, thoroughly ordinary, no different from countless homes across the country. I've read that in the art of rhetoric and persuasion, that it is 
important to repeat things three times. Clebo is skillfully absolving herself of responsibility. We were just ordinary people. John Legend. There may have been signs, but they were small. They did keep saying little, small, trifling, minuscule, and not obvious. The rest of her of the text, I suspect, will be the third time her absolution is reinforced. Two, days after Columbine, I filled a notebook, my journal. I found the journal keeping interesting, something to consider when going through a traumatic event, for sure. I said that about uh, COVID-19. We should, you know, keep journals, all the wackiness. Chapter one. Nate had said the shooters wore black trench coats like the one we bought Dylan. Coat was gone. Tom was frantic, sounded close to hysterical. Is this a subtle tell that Tom has been suspicious of his son's behavior well before the massacre? Question. Now, I do think Nate, at least from Cullen's book, I think Nate suggested Dylan might be involved. So that would have already kind of been pushing him to think, oh, no, is Dylan in this, even if he, you know, for whatever reason. But I think Nate did kind of say, he might be, he, <laughs> Reb and vodka, he. Number two, I was unsettled by the tight quality I'd heard in Dylan's voice. We had said goodbye, and it bugged me that he hadn't stopped to share his plans for the day. This seems to contrive, this seems contrived to me. She is saying, she was not oblivious to her son's behavior, but overt signs were not there. Hmm. Good point. Good point. And I mean, hey, what about that paper with the school? How many of you are that our parents have had a teacher contact you and say that this is the most extreme example of whatever? a student has has ever submitted to me in my time teaching how many of you all have experienced that right number three I now I understand that Tom's fears also included something which Dylan could need a lawyer the district attorney confirmed suspected Dylan was one of the gunmen again was Tom suspicious prior to the incident the parents in the previous text were mostly worried whether their child was hurt or killed hmm well, now with the lawyer, then that would be two people who have kind of suggested, e, you might be culpable, get that insurance policy out. Number four, avidly anti-gun. I was, even though we moved to a rural area where hunting and hanging out at shooting range were popular pastimes, guns were an accepted part of the culture where I live. During a recent Cows broadcast, it was mentioned that most gun owners do not use it for hunting, at least not for animals dr angeline spalding flowers white males and white gun culture she made that a point of emphasis that yeah 2025 we do not hunt in the u.s now, i don't know about other parts of the world but in the u.s no ain't no hunting going on chipotle mcdonald's whole foods and then we go out to shoot people generally or at least targets that look like negras obama Audio segment number two, if you did not get to share the rest of your thoughts and such, write them down. We will have time to share once we get back. Uh, so be thinking, is she lying to us? I didn't even get to my notes. Is she lying to us? Why did she write this here book? What was her primary motivating factor? Be thinking as we proceed. Noble, that's an important one too. Is this a noble project? Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment 
2. Chapter 2 Slivers of Glass As the afternoon turned to twilight and then to darkness, I let go of my last hope that Dylan would zoom up the drive in the dented old black BMW he'd fixed up with his dad, laughing and wondering about dinner. Late in the day, I cornered a member of the SWAT team and asked him a question, point blank. Is my son dead? Yes, he told me. As soon as he said it, I realized I had already known it to be true. How did he die, I asked him. It seemed important to know. Had Dylan been killed by the police or by one of the shooters? Had he taken his own life? I hoped he had. At least, if Dylan died by suicide, I'd know he had wanted to die. Later, I would come to regret that wish almost as bitterly as I've ever regretted anything. The SWAT team member shook his head. I don't know, he said. And then he turned away, leaving me alone. It will perhaps seem callous that my focus was so squarely on Dylan, on the question of his safety, and later on the fact of his death. But my obligation is to offer the truth to the degree to which my memory will allow, even when that truth reflects badly on me. And the truth is that my thoughts were with my son. Over the course of the afternoon, I had come to understand Dylan was suspected of shooting people, but this fact registered with me only in an abstract way at first. I was convinced Dylan could not have been responsible for taking anyone's life. I was beginning to accept he had been physically present during the shootings, but Dylan had never hurt anyone or anything in his life, and I knew in my heart he could not have killed anyone. I was wrong, of course— about that and many things. At the time, though, I was sure. So in those first hours and even days, I wasn't thinking about the victims or about the anguish of their loved ones and friends. Just as our bodies experience shock when we experience extreme trauma, we've all heard stories of soldiers in combat who run for miles unaware of a severed limb. A similar phenomenon occurs with severe psychological trauma. A mechanism to preserve our sanity kicks in and lets in only what we can bear, a little at a time. It is a defense mechanism, breathtaking in its power, both to shield and to distort. Whatever mercy there was in not knowing was short-lived. My anguish over the lives lost or destroyed by my son's hand, and for the pain and suffering this caused their families and friends, is with me every single day. It will never go away as long as I live. I will never see a mother in the cereal aisle with her little girl without wondering if that beautiful child will reach adulthood. I will never see a cluster of teenagers laughing and bumping each other at Starbucks without wondering if one of them will be robbed of life before he's had the chance to live it in full. I will never see a family enjoying a picnic or a baseball game or walking into church without thinking of the relatives of those my son murdered. In writing this book, I hope to honor the memories of the people my son killed. The best way I know to do that is to be truthful, to the best of my ability. And so this is the truth. My tears for the victims did eventually come, and they still do, but they did not come that day. We were still standing in the gravel driveway when the bomb squad arrived. Shortly after, it began to drizzle, 
and I sought shelter on our doorstep with Tom, Byron, our tenant Allison, and Judy Brown. We clustered tightly together under the narrow ledge over our front door. It grew dark and cold suddenly, and the change in weather heightened our sense of vulnerability and our fear of what was to come. Reflexively, I thought to pray, and then, for the first time in my life, I stopped myself from reaching for that comfort. While my mother's parents were Christian, my father had been brought up in a Jewish home, so my siblings and I were raised in both traditions. There are significant differences between the two religions, but both shared a conception of God as a loving, understanding father. Since childhood, I had taken refuge in that understanding of him. However, there was no solace for me there in the early evening of April 20, 1999. Instead, I felt a real sense of fear. I was afraid to make eye contact with God. Every night since the birth of my children, I had asked God to protect and guide them. I truly believed those prayers watched over my sons. As the boys grew, I'd amended my evening prayer to include the safety of others. When Byron was first entering adolescence, I heard a dreadful story on the news. A teenager had stolen a stop sign from an intersection, a lark resulting in a fatal accident. The idea that one of my children would unwittingly cause harm became my worst nightmare. I never worried they'd hurt someone deliberately. I'd never had any cause to worry about such a thing from either of them. But especially as I gripped the dashboard while they were first learning to navigate the narrow, winding canyon roads between our house and town, I hoped no expression of pure teenage stupidity or carelessness would ever result in injury to someone else. Now those prayers had resolved themselves into a reality so horrific I lacked the moral imagination to fully grasp it. I hadn't lost my faith. I was afraid to attract God's attention, to further draw down his wrath. I had always imagined God's plan for me was aligned with my own plan. I believed with all of my heart that if I was a caring and loving and generous person, if I worked hard and gave what I could to charity, if I did my best to be a good daughter and friend and wife and mother— then I would be rewarded with a good life. Exiled to our front steps, the light from the hallway casting harsh shadows on our faces, I felt suddenly ashamed, as my lifelong understanding of God was starkly revealed as a naive fiction, a bedtime story, a pathetic delusion. It was the loneliest I have ever felt. Soon there was no time to think or feel. The police would not let us back into our house. We would have to find another place to stay. Tom, Allison, and I would each be allowed to go inside for five minutes to collect a few personal belongings. We would have to go in one at a time, and under the close watch of two guards. Before the burst of activity to follow, I had a short, vivid vision that I was standing with a multitude of spirits, all of whom suffered. They were all ages, sizes, and races. I couldn't tell who was male and who was female. Their heads were bowed and covered with tattered white robes. My old life had come to an end and a new one had begun. A life in which joy, once so abundant, would be simply a memory. Sorrow, I understood with painful clarity, would transport me through the rest of my life. 
The vision ended when needles of rain began to fall on my face, like slivers of glass. The two police officers escorting me into the house stayed on me like basketball guards, watching my hands closely and keeping their own hands near to mine as I packed. This confused and frightened me, and I felt embarrassed as I rifled through drawers to find underthings and hygiene products. Years afterward, I spoke to one of the officers who'd been at our home. When I described how nervous I had been, he explained the close attention had been for my own protection. They'd been watching to make sure I didn't try to kill myself. I was strangely touched by that later. I narrated what I was doing as I packed, a breathless monologue to focus my scattered concentration. The need to be systematic and organized returned me to myself. Something to sleep in, a nightgown. The weather is set to change. Warm coat. You'll need boots if it snows. Our cat Rocky was ill, and I fumbled about for his medicines, conscious of how ridiculous it seemed against the backdrop of the tragedy. Worried our two little cockatiels would not survive the cold night in our car, I grabbed our thickest beach towels to wrap around their cage. I dug through a downstairs closet for the old nylon duffel bags we used for luggage, but couldn't find two of the bags. Months later, I would learn Dylan used them to carry explosives into the school cafeteria. With the two officers flanking me, I stood at my closet door. The realization I would have to select clothing to wear to Dylan's funeral hit me like a punch in the gut. I was still hoping to be rescued from the truth. After a few deep breaths, I hung a brown tweed skirt, a white blouse, and a dark wool blazer on a single hanger. Tom and I packed the car in a frenzy. We had to go, but where? How could we bring this to someone else's door? The road around our property was thick with media trucks and disaster tourists peering out of their cars. Once we passed the police barricade surrounding our house, we'd be at their mercy. To whose home could we bring a swarm of reporters and curiosity seekers, an inconvenient invasion of privacy at best, and the threat of outright danger at worst? We would arrive not knowing when we would leave, and with a menagerie of sick and messy animals in tow. We needed help, but from whom? Judy offered to host us at her house. Grateful to have an option, we agreed, and she left to get ready for us. Byron wanted to pick up a change of clothes at his own apartment, but the idea terrified me. Could he think clearly enough to drive safely? Reporters and photographers surrounded our property, their cameras and sound equipment aimed toward our house from every vantage point. Would a similar reception greet Byron at his apartment? In truth, I simply didn't want to let him out of my sight. I relented only after Byron reminded me his lease was in his roommate's name. He'd likely be able to pick up a few things without attracting attention. He assured me he'd meet up with us later. As we finished loading the car, some of our neighbors showed up carrying a roast beef wrapped in towels, a gift from yet another neighbor probably her own family's dinner. I'd been crying all day, but that act of spontaneous generosity set off a fresh jag. In just a few hours, we'd shed our old identities as valued members of a vibrant community to take on a new one. We were the parents of a perpetrator now, the agent of that community's destruction.
It felt significant, as I clutched the warm glass dish in my arms, that people would still be kind to us. It was time to go. Some of our neighbors masterminded our escape. One opened the gate at the foot of the drive, while another took his own car down to the bottom of the drive and skidded into the middle of the road, blocking anyone who might follow us. The rest of us raced after him in three separate cars, Byron in one, Allison in the next, with Tom and me in the last. As we careened out of the gate at top speed and flew down the dark, twisting road, I was thrumming with fear of an accident, of exposure, of what would come next. When Tom and I finally slowed down, we found ourselves alone for the first time since noon, driving aimlessly through the suburbs before our 8.30 meeting with our new attorney. I don't know how or when Tom contacted him in the chaos, but they'd arranged a meeting in the parking lot of a convenience store near our house. This plan was so cloak and dagger that under any other circumstances I would have laughed. Once again, I thought, we are the last people in the world. There was no solace to be found in an old identity, though. Whatever was happening, it was happening to us, and it was happening because of whatever Dylan had done. We still had little actual information about what had gone on in the school. We knew for sure only that Dylan had been seen inside with Eric during a shooting incident that left many killed and wounded, and investigators believed he'd been involved. I knew my son had died that day, but I did not know yet exactly what he had done. As we slowly wound our way through the darkened suburb, Tom and I realized we were both having second thoughts about our plan for the night. We were worried Judy's close connection to the community would mean we might be too exposed if we stayed with her. I was also afraid we'd put her family at risk. We needed a place to collapse and grieve. Mostly, we needed somewhere safe, a place to hide. As parents and business partners and spouses, Tom and I were good at coordinating complicated logistics with each other, and we relied on those skills as we tried to figure out how to handle what the next few hours would bring, let alone the next few days. We had not yet begun the emotional work of grieving for Dylan, or of struggling to understand what led him to wreak such terrible destruction, a journey we would not weather together as smoothly. That night, our sole focus was on the most basic of human needs, shelter. Hotels and motels were out of the question as the media flocked to Denver. We couldn't give our distinctive last name at the front desk or register with a credit card. We couldn't leave town. Even if the police would allow such a thing, what would happen to Dylan? A possibility entered my mind. Too absorbed in our own crisis, we'd barely considered what our friends and family members must have been going through as they watched the tragedy evolve. But Tom's half-sister Ruth and her husband Don lived in a quiet suburban neighborhood about 25 minutes away from the epicenter of the tragedy, and they did not share our last name. If they were willing to have us, their home would be a good place to be. We didn't see Ruth and Don often, although they had always been there for us. When we'd first moved to the Denver area, they'd been invaluable in helping me to get settled. After Dylan was born... Ruth was one of my only visitors at the hospital, as I hardly knew anyone else in town. They were good people. When my children were small, 
We'd endured a long season of illness, passing chickenpox and a bad flu around the family for several weeks. On my birthday, I was too ill even to answer the doorbell when it rang. I dragged myself downstairs in time to see Ruth's car pulling away down the drive, and at my feet, an entire home-cooked dinner, complete with a chocolate birthday cake and candles. I was appalled we hadn't thought of them sooner, and could only attribute the oversight to my impaired level of thinking. I pressed the number into Tom's cell phone while he cruised the silent streets. The houses we passed looked inviting and cozy with their lit windows. I could imagine kids getting help with their homework after the soup kettle had been cleared from the table, and all the other ordinary weekday activities that should have been taking place inside. That night, though, I knew that every family in the area would be tuned in to breaking coverage of the horror at Columbine High School. In some of those houses, as in our own, nothing would ever be normal again. When Ruth answered the phone, I was relieved to hear the welcome in her voice, and I nearly wept with gratitude when she said we could stay with them. I called Judy to thank her for her offer, and Tom called Byron at his apartment to let him know the new plan. Years later, Byron told me he'd mistaken his father's voice for his brother's. For one joyful moment, he thought Dylan was calling to tell him he was fine, and that the entire day had been a huge misunderstanding. It was not the first time or the last that one of us would engage in the kind of magical thinking that allowed us to hope we could erase the events of the day. Before we could take shelter at Don and Ruth's, we had to meet with our lawyer. At 8.30 p.m., we pulled into the convenience store parking lot and waited only a moment in the light rain before a car drew into the space next to ours. Gary Lozo looked over his shoulder to make sure nobody was watching then approached the driver's side of our car. I reached over Tom and put my hand out the window to introduce myself, grasping Gary's wet hand in my own. We opened the back door so he could come in from the rain. Gary folded himself carefully into the available space in the back seat, wedging his feet between a litter box and a cat-carrying case. One of the shoulders of his camel-colored overcoat pressed against the steamy car window the other against a towel-covered birdcage. He asked us to drive into a nearby neighborhood so we could talk. A short distance later, Tom parked the car, turned off the ignition, and we both twisted in our seats to look into the face of the man who would help us through the difficult times ahead. Gary's manner comforted me. He not only had a great deal of professional experience— but there was an underlying compassion in the way he spoke to us. He conveyed his concern for us as a bereaved family and acknowledged our need to cope with a devastating loss. Then he asked a series of probing questions about Dylan, about our family, and about our role as parents. As we had done earlier in the day with the detective, we told him everything we knew to be true about our son. He was trying to establish whether we knew of Dylan's plans. After listening to our answers, he announced he did not have one scintilla of doubt we had not. I felt a flood of relief. Though it didn't make the slightest difference in the world, I was desperate to know someone believed us. The earth might be roiling and shifting under my feet, but the fact that we'd no inkling of whatever Dylan had been up to was the only truth I could still be sure of. 
but our lawyer's face was serious as he told us. Your son is responsible for this, but he's dead. You're the closest that people can get to Dylan, so they're going to come after you. After the last victim is buried, there will be a firestorm of hatred leveled against your family. It will be a very difficult time. You will be blamed, and you will be sued, and in the weeks to come, you must think seriously about your safety. Firestorm of hatred. I would have cause to think of the phrase many times over the years. It would turn out to be an eerily prescient, pitch-perfect description of what was to come. Gary suggested steps to ensure our privacy and protection, and he told us he'd be in touch with the officials about retrieving Dylan's body. I appreciated how clearly he outlined his next steps, and that he told us exactly when he would speak to us again. Then we drove him back to his car. The rest of our drive was silent as Tom and I struggled to process what Gary had said. Don and Ruth were looking out for us, and they opened the garage door as we approached so our car wouldn't be spotted on the street. I'll never forget that slit of light slowly opening to a bright rectangle in the blackness, or how deeply surreal and science-fictional it felt to glide into their garage as if we were docking a spaceship. At the time, I was conscious of a profound sense of unreality. I was wrong. This was our new reality. Tom turned off the ignition, and we sat together a moment in silence. I took a deep breath before opening the passenger side door. I was upset to be inconveniencing Tom's family so greatly, and afraid we were bringing the threat of exposure to their lives. But the predominant emotion I was feeling was shame. It was hard to get out of the car. Both of Tom's parents were dead by the time he was twelve. He had been raised by his half-brother, but Ruth was older and out of the house by then. Tom and I are nearer in age to Ruth and Don's children than we are to Ruth and Don. Although there was great affection between us, I thought of them like an aunt and uncle, I still felt a bit formal, too, always trying to put my best foot forward. Don is the son of a farmer, generous to a fault, the kind of salt-of-the-earth, hard-working Midwestern guy you hope to end up with as a neighbor. Ruth is known for her loving generosity. They're both gentle and soft-spoken and kind, and have four beautiful daughters, all of them successful in their own right. And yet, there I was, slinking into their home under the cover of darkness, the mother of a criminal. Don and Ruth's greeting was warm but quiet as they helped us unload the car. I was profoundly thankful when Byron arrived minutes after we did. We set up camp in the basement apartment. I was relieved to see two alert faces with bright orange cheeks peering out at their new surroundings when I removed the towels from the birdcage. Because of Ruth's allergies, we put our two cats, Rocky and Lucy, in the utility room, and they slunk behind the dryer in the unfamiliar space. I wished I could do the same. When we joined Don and Ruth upstairs, I discovered that being inside a normal home was even more nightmarish than the frantic limbo we'd endured outside of our own. Those long hours in the driveway, we'd been suspended in time, without any access to news. But Don and Ruth, like everyone else in the country, and we would discover later around the world, 
were glued to the nonstop television coverage of the shootings. We went from having no information to having too much. The chaos inside my mind was hard enough to bear, but the sudden flood of televised speculation and information was infinitely worse. We could see the horrifying aftermath of what our son had done, the incongruity of a triage center set up on a suburban front lawn. We could hear the shock and horror in the voices of the kids who had escaped the school, see the grim looks on the faces of the first responders. There was no escaping the enormity of it all. The eyewitness descriptions were so horrific I could feel them bouncing right off my brain. It must have been then, too, that I heard early descriptions of the victims for the first time, although I do not remember that part. I would later learn it is common for people, in the immediate throes of desperate grief, to experience this type of denial, and in the years since, I have talked with many people who are puzzled and ashamed by it, as I was, but the brain takes in only what it can bear. Outside our home, insulated from news, we'd still been able to keep the tragedy at arm's length. All at once, it was suffocatingly close. The difference between seeing a fire at a distance and standing knee-deep in live coals while the inferno rages around you. When I began to moan, My God, this can't be true. I can't watch this. Ruth quickly told Don to turn off the TV. The silence was better, even if the echoes of the horrors we'd seen and heard still bounced off the walls around us. Near midnight, it became clear our host needed to go to bed. All day long, I had wanted privacy so I could collapse in grief and silence, so I could focus on the incomprehensible situation and the loss of my son. With that moment upon me, though, I felt terrified of being alone with the unspeakable truth. Ruth put fresh sheets on the guest beds in the basement and then left us. Byron was to sleep on a hideaway bed in the downstairs office, right outside the spare room, where Tom and I were staying. I left the door open all night so I could see the lump Byron's feet made under the blanket. It was vital for me to know he was there. I must have checked for that lump a hundred times. As the house grew quiet, Tom and I lay sleepless beside one another, touching each other's hands and shoulders to offer what precious little comfort there was to be had. We had lost our son. Dylan was dead. We did not know where or in what condition his body was. We did not know if he had taken his own life or if he had been killed by the police or by his friend. Despite the horrifying reports we had heard in the news, we still did not know exactly what he had done. That first night, the idea that Dylan could have been centrally involved in this monstrous event was beyond my ability to grasp, and I refused it. Instead, I conjured a million alternative explanations. I could not fathom how Dylan could have obtained a gun or why he would have wanted one. I obsessed instead on a million other possible scenarios. Was he duped into participating, thinking the ammunition was fake? Had it been a prank gone terribly wrong? Had he been forced to participate under some kind of duress? I told myself that even if our son had been a part of what had happened, he hadn't necessarily shot anyone. Both Tom and I believed with all of our hearts that Dylan could not have killed anyone, and we clung, 
not just for hours and days, but for months to that belief. In the long hours of that night and in the following days, my mind would only occasionally light upon the idea that there were people Dylan might have hurt, but then that intolerable thought would skitter away just as fast. It shames me even now to admit this. At the time, I simply felt crazy. By many standards, I was. After Tom fell into a fitful sleep, I pressed a pillow against my face to silence my sobbing. For the first time, I truly understood how heartbroken had come to describe a sensation of terrible, terrible grief. The pain was actual, physical, as if my heart had been smashed to jagged fragments in my chest. Heartbroken was no longer a metaphor, but a description. I did not sleep, and my thoughts as I lay there were as circular and disjointed as they'd been all day. I'd told the detective Dylan had attended prom the weekend before with a big group of his friends, and I returned to my memories of that night and the next day. I'd gotten up from bed to check in with him when he got home early the morning after prom. He'd had a great night and thanked me for buying his ticket. He'd danced. Not for the first time in his life, I had reflected on how our youngest son always seemed to do things right. I've done a good job with this kid, I'd thought to myself as I returned to my room that night. A mere seventy-two hours later, and I was lying rigid in an unfamiliar bed, that feeling of warm satisfaction supplanted by utter confusion, growing horror, and sorrow. Integrating the two realities seemed impossible. The day before his prom, Dylan had sat shoulder to shoulder with his father, looking at the floor plans of various dorm rooms, working out the comparative square footage of each configuration. At six foot four, and as someone who'd never shared a bedroom with anyone before, Dylan had wanted to secure as much real estate as possible. I'd laughed, then, to see the two of them there, scribbling sums on scrap paper. It was so quantitative, and so like Dylan, to choose his college dorm room by using math. Those memories were so recent as to be still warm, and reflecting back on them threw me into even greater confusion. Was any of that the behavior of a person preparing to go on a killing spree? This only started to make sense when I began to learn more about people who are planning to die by suicide. They often make concrete plans for the future. Surviving family members are frequently baffled by recently purchased cars and booked cruises. Talking with people who have survived their own suicide attempts has helped researchers to shed light on the mystery. In some cases, these future plans are a way to throw concerned friends and family members off a trail of suicidal behavior. If you were concerned a person close to you was planning self-harm, wouldn't your concerns be assuaged if they booked a cruise? In other cases, such plans are simply sign and symptom of the genuinely broken logic driving the suicidal brain. They may signal the ambivalence the person feels, a desire to live, that is at times as strong as the desire to die. A person with intent to self-harm can also believe simultaneously in both realities, that they will take a Caribbean vacation and that they will have died by suicide before they have the chance to go. I knew none of this then, 
and so the idea of Dylan eagerly making plans for his future at college, while planning a shooting rampage that would end in his own death, seemed absurd, and thus more evidence that he could not have meant to participate. In the months and years to follow, I would be forced many times to confront everything I did not know about my son. This Pandora's box will never empty. I will spend the rest of my life reconciling the reality of the child I knew with what he did. That night was the last time I was able to hold Dylan in my mind exactly as I had held him in life, a beloved son, brother, and friend. And so it was that when the blue-gray light of dawn finally appeared through the basement windows, I was still asking the question, first to Dylan and then to God, the question that would bedevil and perplex me, and ultimately animate the rest of my life. How could you? How could you do this? Just incredible, man. Just incredible. Catherine Massey, book club context of white supremacy the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate how could you not know this they planned to bomb the school for a year, maybe longer. How did you not know this? I don't even want to hear no nonsense about old Eric Harris. Eric Harris spent the night at their house in the days leading up to this attack. Came in the house with a massive duffel bag. Tom Clebo said, oh, you know, the children, they play hopscotch and stuff, you know, thought he had his laundry and kickball you know you didn't ask what was in the duffel bag no <laughs> the same eric harris that got arrested with your child breaking into the van yep that that eric same eric harris that got suspended from school for hacking into the computers going into the students lockers with your child that eric harris yep that eric and you didn't ask what was in the duffel bag no nope. Catherine Massey Book Club. So the poll, I'll give you the results. You all make sure you vote. It'll be up for a week. The poll, what do you think was Sue Klebold's main motivator for writing this book about her child's failed attempt to float up Columbine High School? Boom! Right now, 50% of the folks who voted think the main motivator was dollar bills. Number two, with 25% of the votes, to deflect blame. Number three, with 18.8% of the vote, get attention. She get to go on Oprah, TED Talk, documentaries. Lowest percentage, 6.3% of the voters so far, parental guilt. I think Lauren said guilt. Huh? Huh? Apparently, most of our voters so far, they don't think she's wrote this out of guilt either. Uh, Okaldokles, let's see. Non-Clemson grad, non-Clemson dad, pardon. Mommy see woke baby, uh, if you'll have commentary and then the other folks who are with us, proceed. Uh, hello, can I be heard? 
Yes, sir. All right. Um, we didn't catch the first half hour because we were teaching, but when we came in, the epilogue was just ending with a prologue or the preface, I think it was. But we've caught um, the book since then, and this is very interesting. Um, as for uh, what I think about the reason this book was made, um, I think this book was made to distract from her son's duplicity, blame Eric and other alleged criminal elements, and persuade people she's not a negligent mother. She talks about her son like he was the one who was killed. Um, personally, I think she's halfway to acting like her like her son was the one killed and her son was Emmett Till or something. Um, she referred to her son as a criminal. I guess she's not. I guess she's not um, ready yet to admit that her son is a mass murderer. I believe I heard that the other son is a drug addict. So uh, basically, uh, she's batting a thousand when it comes to raising kids. Let's see. Um, also, initially, when she talked about when the cops came to interview her about her son and whether or not he has bombs in the house or anything like that, and all the ridiculous um, uh, excuses she started making, like maybe someone convinced him to go shoot blank um, uh, uh, um, guns with blank bullets, and then you know he didn't think the uh, the bullets were real. As a black person, as a para, as a black parent, could you imagine the police coming to your house, questioning you about um, your child's behavior or something that they think they've done, and thinking that your kid is just simply um, just some kind of like start making excuses like your kid would have done something this uh, crazy, and that there's a reasonable excuse for it. Um, and let's see, and um, with this. Uh, you know, I do wonder this is probably a bad joke, but, uh, you know, she could probably start a group for parents whose kids are mass shooters. And with that, I will mute my line. They do have a whole documentary about that where they gra- gather up exactly what you said, parents of school shooters, and they commiserate and share, you know, what it's like. And that whole process should be exclusively white people now they did grab a black parent in there you can even note the difference but yeah they they absolutely could white mothers and all talk about how we are not negligent in all of this Hmm. let us see much obliged non Clemson dad Uh, let's see I'll read one email then we'll nab other callers this is email number two Greetings, Gus T. I haven't finished the introduction yet, and I already despise this book. (laughs) Number one, the introduction is one racist suspect vouching for another. She is still one of us. Absolutely. I said that like, dang, you can go get Andrew Solomon, gay white male suspected racist. But either way, best-selling author. He gets to go out and give lectures, make a lot of money, all of that. He gets the company. That's another one. So if non-Clemson dad, he was some miscreant deadbeat dad. He was going to write a book, talk about his failures as a parent. Do you think they're going to go get Michelle Alexander to cape for him? Write the introduction. Talk about how, you know, the bedraggled black males had a tough time and 
affects his ability to parent. And in fact, we should feel sorry for him, empathize with his plight. Yes. Are you serious? Anyway, uh, let's see. Oh, and one of us, now they had that attack in New Zealand, right, with the World Cup. I don't know if y'all saw that white man with a gun, I think, in New Zealand went and shot up the construction site. Now, this is the Women's World Cup. Norway was playing New Zealand. I said, oh, dang. Today's date, I already told you, it's July 20. In 2011, on July 22, Anders Breivik bombed and shot up a lot of children in Norway. The reason I caught it on this person's first comment was he said she's still one of us there is a popular nonfiction book about that bombing and shooting I think he killed like 76 people total because there was the bombing and then he went and just shot up a lot of children but the book is called One of Us globally what does it mean to be that bombing that has taken on a whole different significance for me after reading this book wow and Oppenheimer coming out in the midst of all of this I'm so glad she emphasized it wasn't just the police that had to come to their residence it was the bomb squad how many parents have that not just my child was into some mischief but the bomb squad had to come to our residence number two many racist suspects are the greatest actors what I put up there master deceivers and mother superior they could almost pass for being human if you ignore all their criminality that is what she is begging us to do in all of this he said uh, non-Clemson dad said she said killer not mass murderer and really mass child murderer Tim McVeigh they were calling him baby killer number three she and her husband raised a race soldier violence is racist white supremacist culture white culture just look at the weak non-existent attempts to stop those two mass murderers before and during the failed school bombing talk about it number four Mrs. Klebold's voice narration is a facade my opinion but I see and hear false emotions of guilt sadness and sympathy empathy like she is practicing a stage play eee. I said doesn't this have some Alice Siebold overtones remember that lucky number five the reference of her murderous offsprings blonde hair as a halo is a way to garner more sympathy even though she denies his blonde hair was like a halo in the same sentence what I find stunning so that's two books we've read where these cowardly child killers get described as having a halo why not horns for Satan I think they did say the scent of Satan is in the I think they did say that that is much closer than all this halo and that's once again so I don't even remember them saying that they matter of fact what they said with Michael Brown Jr. specifically and they got in trouble with the New York Times they said Michael Brown Jr. he was no or was because he's dead then Michael Brown Jr. was no angel that's what they said he wasn't no 
Oh, there's a halo around his kinky Negro head. Oh, no, no, no. Number six. Is this book a training manual for the parents of future mass murderers? We shall see because I don't care about Dylan or his family's habits other than to see patterns and other non-white people should be aware of and counter. Could be a ma- we have to see. Do- oh, did you all know Jeffrey Dahmer's father wrote a book? I was a little bit ashamed that I didn't know about this, but I'm still learning. But yes, Jeffrey Dahmer's father wrote a book. Reading more important than watching screens especially not I mean what are you going to read fiction wise that's going to top Jeffrey Dahmer's father number seven I bet law enforcement was generally courteous to the Klebolds can you just hear we know what would happen if they had had the complexion for the protection of the collection of the alliteration I suspect they were more than I suspect they were there more for their protection. What did you just hear? Sue Klebo said the officer told her we were not there thinking that you were some criminal and harboring bombs and fugitives. We wanted to make sure you didn't harm yourself. We protect your white life. Number eight, people coming to help and giving them food and water. Interesting. Every, see, every time, it doesn't matter. You can shoot up the church, shoot up the school, the grocery store, whatever. We got you. Grilled cheese, we got you. Water, we got you. Roast beef, we got you. You got niggers who are innocent and have committed no crime. They got children who go by the fire department and act, can we get water? I got a bloody nose. Get out of here, coon. Ah. <laughs> Emmett Till. Let's see. Z's mom, did you have commentary to share? Z's mom. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, greetings. Um, I, there was one thing I wanted to say that I hope hasn't been said already, but I was just thinking about it today, how odd it is that Tom Clevo said that Dylan was his best friend, but then I think when the police had asked him, he said he hadn't been in his room for at least two weeks, which I thought was really odd because I mean, in general, if you're a parent, I would suspect that you would at least be in your child's room. I mean, at the very least, to even just say goodnight to them or something. But to not be in there for two weeks, that seems very odd, especially if you consider your child to be your best friend. Also, just think it's so interesting, like you were saying right now, about all of the support that she was getting to Klebold. Makes you really makes you really think, because the Shoals, they, they had to leave Columbine or they had to leave Colorado. I think they moved to like Texas or something. I'm pretty sure Sue or Tom, I think they still live at least in Colorado, if I'm not mistaken, which really makes you think about, you know, because in a previous article, they talked about how the shows were being mistreated. And even Jeff Cass kind of talks about how Mike, Michael was being mistreated and, even though his child was actually a victim. So it's very interesting. That's all I have to say for now. Thank you. White people, one of us still classified as white. 
Uh, let's see. Other folks, uh, Lauren, victim in New Jersey, did you all have commentary to share? You should be with us as well. Yeah, Gus. Um, I, you know, it, it's definitely not a, like, you know, not anything funny, but, you know, I just thought um, if Mike Xavier Johnson's parents wrote a book, you know, I mean, are they going to get Morgan Freeman to do the audio read? Like, it's it just it just wouldn't happen, and this I'm I'm going I'm going to tune in whether live or not and listen to this book. And I agree with that email. This book is awful and it's going to be awful. She keeps interjecting self harm. She's trying to equate this to a mental health issue, not an act of terrorism, not white racism, but I'll stay, uh, you know, stay locked into this book read. Um, I, I want to see later in this book if disrespected white racist woman, is she going to have any empathy or sympathy for the Harris family? Um, you know, since I got a name call in, I want to get a metaphor in. She's been throwing uh, the Harris killer under the bus. You know what I mean? Going forward and pressing reverse. The neighbors help their escape. I'm still processing that, and that is that is just that is just amazing. And how black people are always the whole community is criminalized and accused of harboring criminals, and, and you know this the mythical code of silence and. You know, police come around trying to get information, and there's no snitches in sight. Okay. As they drove around, they tried to avoid disaster terror. What in the world is a disaster terror? And ha- I mean, tourism. Sorry, tourism. So disaster tourism or tourism. Um, how? I mean, there's a there's there's a shooting going on as they're escaping. So I am assuming this is the same day and we have more cloud chasing white people running around getting their um, disaster tourism in, you know, just, just insane. Um, they were already mentioned. She talked to the police officer years later who assisted in the raid of her home. I just couldn't see black people being in contact with um, former police officers and having a cordial conversation um, about the time they, they, they kicked in Jamal's door. You know, they kicked in Malik's door, you know, looking for drugs. I, I, it just doesn't make any sense. She said she was brought up as a Christian and Jewish. She didn't speak of the, of Jewish in the context of race, but religion. So I don't want to hear no other white guest get up here and act like it's a mystery if we have some racist white people that classify themselves as Jews. I close. Woo. Much obliged. Yes, there's a lot of uh, we're just going to heap all the blame on our sick white brother Mr. Harris and say it was all old Eric's fault 
And uh, if we could have just got rid of old Reb, which now e- again, now even if we want to say that now, hey, they got suspended from school, breaking into the computers, hacking, and then the lockers. They got arrested, felony, for the vans. <laughs> That's just boom, boom. Those two. Now who knows with the missions and everything else that they were doing. Who knows whatever else they heard or were accused of. And then all of Dylan's other mischief. I just said Eric spent the night at their house before then. Like what the world? What the world? You already been in trouble with this dude. I don't even know why he's allowed to stay here. Much less coming in with a duffel bag and you don't even ask what you got there. What's all that? So it was heavy enough, heavy enough he had to carry it with two hands. Wow. What is that? And many of you all said, hey. I don't have the anarchist cookbook. I've never made a pipe bomb. Wow. All of this detail that we heard about making homemade napalm and the powder for the bombs and everything that you would need for all of this. If they could smell the scent of Satan in the air, somebody brings all of that into the house and there's no, what is that? What have you been doing? (sighs) Amongst from someone who already there should be some concern. We've had serious mischief, felony mischief with you, buddy. And just throw him. Yeah, it's all that old no count Reb's fault. We just get old Reb out of here. Lauren, did you have commentary you wanted to add? Um, Yes, sir, I do. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, Thank you for allowing me to speak. I was going to say something last time, but I forgot. Um, The guy, uh, white man Andrew Solomon, his speech pattern seemed a bit unusual. He had a kind of a Truman Capote sound to him um, for this segment. Um, It said, Judy approached me, dropping her voice confidentially. She told me about a violent website Eric had made. Why didn't you tell me, I asked, genuinely baffled. She told the police, she said. I I don't really know what to think about Judy Brown. I've said this before. I mean, she did report Eric to the police, but it seems like she united with the parents of Dylan Clebo really fast after the murder. So I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, um, Sue Clebo said, it will perhaps seem callous that my focus was so squarely on Dylan on the question of his safety and later on, and later on the fact of his death. But my obligation is to offer the truth to the, to the degree to which my memory will allow, even when that truth reflects badly on me. Now, she didn't say she was telling the truth. She said she was obligated to offer the truth. So that's interesting. That's pretty slick. Um, Later, it says, shortly after it began to drizzle and I sought shelter on our doorstep with Tom Byron and our tenant Allison and Judy Brown. We clustered tightly together under the narrow ledge over our front door. It grew dark and cold suddenly and the change in weather heightened our sense of vulnerability and our fear of what was to come. Um, She's not exactly saying she's vulnerable, 
but she might be, uh, she probably is effective at getting readers to think that without her coming right out and saying it. Um, she said, while my parents were Christian, well, my mother's parents were Christian, my father had been brought up in a Jewish home. Uh, my father is Jewish. That made me think of Mr. Cass's response when one of the callers asked him if Eric and Dylan were racist. And she didn't say Dylan was Jewish. She just said her father was. But it's some sort of implication. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure what she was getting at or why she shared that. I don't know. It just That's what it made me think about. Um, with the lawyer, when he gets in the car and they go somewhere, they have the whole, you know, routine, the cloak and dagger routine. And the lawyer starts asking him some questions and said he was trying to establish whether we knew of Dylan's plans. After listening to our answers, he announced he did not have one scintilla of doubt. We had not. I felt a flood of relief. Though it didn't make the slightest difference in the world, I was desperate to know someone believed us. And I think that right there, that might be a large part of why she's writing this book. She wants people to believe her. Um, the definition I use for belief is accepting something with no evidence. Um, the lawyer used the phrase firestorm of hatred. And it says, firestorm of hatred, I would have cause to think of the phrase many times over the years. It would turn out to be an eerily prescient, pitch-perfect description of what was to come. I don't think that's actually what happened. But this text seems written to make the reader think it did happen or it shouldn't happen, not to sue Klebold anyway. It's kind of like, um, I don't know, it seems like a I'm a vulnerable, weak, white woman, don't mistreat me type of text. Um, this narrative is pretty old, but it still works, so I guess why should white women stop doing it? Um, let me see. In the long hours of that night and in the following days, my mind would only occasionally light upon the idea that there were people Dylan might have hurt, but then that intolerable thought would skitter away just as fast. It shames me even now to admit this. At the time, I simply felt crazy. By many standards, I was. Um, I question it when white people say or other people imply that white people feel shame. There usually is not any evidence of this. They just say it or um, other people say what they think white people should feel. I think shame is an emotion, and I don't think white people collectively feel emotion in the same way that white people do. Um, and that's all I have for now. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, that, that's not... The previous caller said something about uh, disaster tourism. One of those purge movies, they had murder tourism, so I don't know. That's not uh, that crazy for white people. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, so, Lon, that if she even if she wants us to believe something that there's not really any evidence to support, that's 
sounding like master deceiver uh, to me to come out here and confound our understanding you know poor white woman (laughs) and Dave Cullen he said the same thing he gave that whole line hey your children aren't here they're gonna hate you that's what happened oh and I said then like really what what I think Sue Klebold she does still live in Colorado unless I've been misinformed I think we all said or I know I did I think some other folks said do what show cause like what put it this way we heard about what happened to the shoals people showing up on their lawn in trench coats and what have you did that happen to the Klebolds they would have to break it down let me know and in fact even point that out Dave Cullen included how the Klebolds were hated and all of that he didn't say a word about what happened to the Shoals family barely mentioned Isaiah's name in the book not one of the protagonists that's what he said Uh, and I think this is probably comparing to Dave Cullen so I suspect this is probably going to be two books in a row where we do not hear now exactly what did Dylan say when he killed Isaiah Shoals in the library I don't know if she's going to mention his name specifically, but I suspect that's going to be one that is greatly lots of euphemisms and metaphors and lots of indirect speech. But we shall see. Uh, Let me see if I can get through some of my notes quickly. All righty. I went I started from the very beginning she doesn't dedicate this book to the victims who her son killed uh, and trying to blow up the whole school nope people who feel alone hopeless and desperate I don't even know what that I mean is that everybody I think everybody feels alone at some time so the book is to everybody what kind of to me that just from the very beginning you are coming out of the gate with total nonsense not victims of gun violence no Psychopath? Nope, 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 nope. People who feel alone. Okay. Uh, She says, interestingly, I think we didn't hear this. This is from the preface. I've cut back on most of my local volunteer commitments and focused more on participation at the national level. Now, that's one where I was thinking, ka-ching, I'm sure if you're going out nationally, they got to fly you in from Colorado to Pensacola, Buffalo, L.A., Sacramento, that's going to be some money. So, and and, and or attention. You can now be fa- exactly what I said about Dylan. We want to be famous. We will get a that's natural born killers, really. Give me that camera. Yes, give me a TED talk. Talk all about this. Yes, I'm Sue Klebold. Let me get my makeup, get my nice pink blazer and everything. Come out here looking tough. Got my earrings to match. I got, hey, I was a nobody. Suburban mom now. I got a best-selling book. Do speaking tours. Got someone to manage all of that. Hey, BBC did a documentary on me. Check me out. And with sympathy. Uh, Let's see. Why would you cut back on your volunteer work, too? If you, you know, are getting paid for all of this, do more. Most you can do. Let's see. 
they got this book uh, translated in Portuguese. I chuckled because that's how we got here. Uh, from the introduction, Andrew Solomon, again, gay white man, just like uh, Dave Cullen, the defects of their children. That word defect stood out to me because I don't think there was anything defective about Dylan. I didn't hear about that. I don't know. You would have to explain what that what that means to me. Um, but I don't think there's anything defective about Dylan or Eric Harris, unless I missed something. He says, it says, he writes, I never imagined they had egged their child on to a heinous act. I don't think anybody thought that. But I did think that their story would illuminate innumerable clear mistakes. I didn't want to like the Klebold. That word, Mr. Fuller gives caution about that word. I don't even know what that has to do with this. We're just supposed, that's why they said like, why are you going to talk to this guy? Why don't you go talk to some experts? Admit, Hey, number one, why don't you talk to the family members? Two, why don't you talk to the police? Three, then yes, talk to some experts. Dr. Langman, Homeland Security and all that. Talk to them so they can better understand it. And find me a gay white man. Okay. He says, uh, and see, even he slips in. He's not a doctor. He says, the psychopathy behind the Columbine massacre could emerge in anyone's household. I do not agree. Unless we're talking about the collective white psychopathy of white people. No. This is just the product of white culture. They brag about mom making. Oppenheimer is playing right now and we are two days away one of us that was a bombing in Norway and a shooting just like the Columbine boys the word suburban she says in Sue Klebold's telling she was an ordinary suburban mother even that stood out because I don't know what that ordinary suburban this is an environment Dave Cullen told us we specifically came out here to get away from the Negras and integrated schools in Denver. They knew it was going to be a rush of white people. That's what you mean when you say that. I was an ordinary white mom. Hmm. Whatever that means. Let's see. She argues good people do bad things that all of us are morally confused. I don't know what any of that means. You don't have moral people in a system of white supremacy. Ditto for good people. Mr. Fuller says that explicitly. Uh, let's see. She says she worked in the same building as parole office and had felt alienated and frightened getting on the elevator with ex-convicts. Doesn't, isn't that Carolyn Bryant Dunham? I'm suspect particularly like, uh-oh, knowing what I would think, probably a lot of nigra males. Like, oh, my God, he's fitting to rape me. Oh, Lord. Isaiah Shaw's going to. And then after this is, oh, man, could have been Dylan. Should have been Dylan. I'm even disgusted. Like, if you're seeing some person that's there on a nonviolent offense, then, oh, man, Dylan, what? Your son is a mass murderer. There's nobody here like your son. Get out of here. Uh, let's see. Even the way he describes this shooting, he says, school shootings are the most appalling crimes of all because they involve both problems and among school shootings, Columbine remains something of a gold standard, the ultimate exemplar to which all others are indebted. That is the type of phrasing that I would expect in a system of white supremacy where children are not valued, where it's talking about 
an event where it could have been 500 people killed easily. And this is talked about as something to be admired. The gold standard. What are you taught? He didn't even pull out the tacky darkest day. Nope. The gold standard. Ultimate. All of that suggests this is a worthy achievement, an accomplishment, which is exactly how they thought of this. Let's see. He says, we live in a society of blame, and some of the victims' families were relentless in their demand for impossible answers, in quotes, that were being kept hidden, in quotes. That's one, wow, if I was a parent, you might have had to physically restrain me to say that in my face when, look here, buddy, gay, when he said no, no name calling, like, oh, man, ooh, I'm going to have to keep my mouth closed, like, look here. The police should have been criminally indicted for hiding evidence. And this started from day one. Don't get out here talking no nonsense. Like, are you serious to even put that down in the book? Hidden. Yes, it was years of deliberate white lies. I said there should be whole books just about the police corruption in in years of willful police corruption. And yes, hiding destroying evidence so yes and the parents were not forthcoming they didn't talk to the police mm, mm, mm. i don't know can we get immunity mm, mm. i don't know mm. <laughs> even cullen wrote about that like we really are not interested in hearing about what a sweet loving boy villain is like let's talk about that essay man anyway let's see <laughs> get back to the notes uh blame it if I get out of here uh, always says the coolness of their deception most parents think they know their children better than they do the children who don't want to be known can keep their inner lives very private now that's another one if we had not read Cullen's book had Jeffrey Cass on the program Dr. Flower, Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers and many other guests done our homework that's another one like don't you insult me uh, Andrew Sullivan and Sue Klebold either get some gay white man to come and talk nonsense uh, to me like hey that dude coward your cowardly white child wrote a paper about exactly what he did going out and shooting up the school the teacher calls you both in and you said then oh da, 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 da. Da, da. he's just got a vivid imagination you're exaggerating this is days before the shooting after everything else that's happened they Jeffrey Cass had in his book when he got into the University of Arizona the teachers at Columbine were surprised I've never even heard that before how do you have somebody get into school particularly a white dude and it's what you got into what Jesus what is going on huh. affirmative action I don't man he was flunking Jim didn't they say that come on man come on uh, he says Eric appears to have been a homicidal psycho. That 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 see that that's right there. I said before, I'm just not picking that up. You're not gonna have every gay white man just come and tell me Eric was a psychopath. Eric was a psychopath, so that we can blame this on him and then say Dylan was depressed from people who are not even psychologists. No, I'm not. I'm rejecting all of that unless we're saying this is collective white psychopathy, and I'm even including Sue Klebold for writing this old raggedy book here. Unless that's how we're talking about it. 
Nope, because this is just white culture. There's nothing special about Eric, Dylan, nothing. And everybody said that. It's particularly about Dylan. My God, they've said that over and over. What was special about him? I agree. Nothing special at all. What does it mean to be white? Ain't Dr. Flower said that too. Don't slip and put this on mental illness because most of these folks, they are not. Sue Klebo said that too. They are not mentally ill. They are classified as white. Let's see. Oh, my God. Eric might have lost motivation without the thrill of dragging Dylan down with him. What in the Christ? What are you even talking about? Well, this is another. Where do you even have evidence of that? Dragging metaphors and all of that. Again, that's another one. If all of us had seen the basement tapes, that would be a tough one to even put that on the paper. Like, are you serious? Let's see. I said that about the word love. I think Lauren talked about that too. Love being in Dylan's journal. Big to do. I don't even know what he meant by all that. He called the zombies a lot too. Let's see. He said most people have felt an occasional flash of murderous rage towards someone with whom they are intimate. I had a serious pause there. I mean, I've had disagreements and such with a lot of people, but I mean, murderous rage? <laughs> like, I, particularly, you're saying intimate now. I don't know. Do you mean sexual intercourse or murderous? We're like, no, no. I do not feel like I want to kill, much less, we're talking, I think I want to kill at least 250 of you all. Like, <laughs> to what? What? much less writing about this all the time and such as Dylan and Eric were. Uh, let's see. The nobility of this book, I highlighted that too. Like, what the Christ are you even talking about? Uh, let's see. He includes that tacky... Ta see, this book was written in 2016. I think they seriously took advantage of the fact that by this point, people's memories are bad. Even Jeffrey Cass, when he was here talking on Monday, he could have been practicing racism. And I have heard some of these folks... We are talking about things that happened 25 years ago. Everybody's memory fades. Randy Brown even said he forgot, you know, some of the details about this. It's been decades. Felony arrest. Uh, they are taking advantage of the fact that you got a whole generation of people. They really don't know anything about this case, much less all the details that you would get even from reading a book like Dave Cullen's with its inaccuracies. Much less people who might have been around that time and they read inaccurate reports and whatever else they were bullied blah 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 or they didn't even do that they watched bowling for Columbine and that's it they can super exploit a lot of people probably don't know these details particularly outside the state of Colorado psh, we will clean house we can just say whatever we want to and psh, New York Times bestseller uh, let's see They said they would ask, Tom would ask Dylan, what the hell were you thinking? Did you read the teacher's essay where they called you in for a conference where he wrote about the dude in a trench coat killing everybody? That's what he was thinking. <sighs> Let's see. I did, they got to tell me, if that's not mentioned in this book, like, oh, man. Oh, man. Are you serious? Are you serious? Uh, Let's see. I ask him, forgive me for, oh yeah, get out of here. What a lame. Uh, 
the darkest self. See, that we got it again. That term is used so consistently in this case where they will say darkest this, darkest that. I don't understand why that has to be included. Let's see. Let's see. She said, oh, my God, he, not he. Excuse me. Oh, and he got to take up so much like Jesus Christ. Why is it so long? He says, uh, the mother of a killer and the loss of the fundamental belief that life is subject to logic. One, that if you do things right, you can forestall certain grim outcomes. There is zero evidence that the Klebols did things right, whatever that means. I mean, zero. And in fact, she mentioned that diversion program. Jesus Christ. Jeffrey Cass included the details about that. They said amongst 500 clients to go through that program, there were 15 who got early termination. How in the Christ are Eric fucking Harris and Dylan Klebold two of the 15 exceptions? Somebody should be fired or criminally charged. What the And I don't want to hear no nonsense about, oh, they fooled us. They were so deceptive. No. If these had been niggers, Eric Harris wrote on the form, they had a box. Are you feeling homicidal? He checked yes. How do you get early termination and you check homicidal on the box? Dylan Klebo didn't even do his community service. His mom, Sue Klebo, had to go and talk to the people like, oh, he's so wholesome. He's so pure. He's white. Come on. And they pass him out of the program. Jeffrey Cass wrote about that. He didn't even do what was needed to complete the program. Why isn't that a red flag? Hey, man. Felony arrest here. Do the right thing. Behave. All that was. No, there's zero evidence they did the right thing. Zero. Oh, it's so disgraceful. Let's see. Preface all that to get through Solomon. Preface. Uh, 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 uh. Oh my! I'll never know what a liar you're. Such a liar. Uh, that Randy Brown said that they were at the funeral. Randy Brown said this book is a total lie. I would agree so far. Every page of it. Uh, attentive and engaged. If that's true, that paper should have set off all types of alarms. And in fact. You really want to tell me that you're noble and courageous? You'd be quoting from that paper. That's days, but that's that's exactly what was on your child's mind. And a teacher even told you, hey, this is the worst, most disturbing paper I've ever read. A white dude in a trench coat killing people and gloating about it, thinking that this is a godly thing to do what in the world and you totally ignored it you're not engaged let's see let's see she had the audacity to mention charleston in this book i thought that was so tacky talking about uh dylan another dylan going to shoot up the church with no detail let's see She missed subtle signs of psychological deterioration. I just, I totally reject that. Like I said, that uh, paper, amongst many other things that would stick out, you're failing, Jim. That in and of itself, like, I don't know about you all, 
if I had come home and was looking like I was about to even get a D in gym, my mother and my father would have flipped out. Like I said, you don't want to put on your gym shorts. How do you get a D in gym? You see, you don't want to put on your gym shorts. Let's see. She says uh, she talked to all these experts. Again, if you're such a pariah, everyone hates you. How would all of these experts presumably talk to you free of charge and willingly to give you their white expertise? Why would that even Andrew Solomon? Why would that be? She's still one of us. Uh, Let's see. Spirit of inquiry. Oh, she's so disgusting. Chapter one. Can't believe this. Uh, 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 uh. The one time Dylan had been in serious trouble. We already know he was suspended from school twice. Is that not serious? I don't know. Maybe if you're white, being suspended from school is not serious trouble. I think hacking into the school computers and then breaking into students' lockers, I think that's serious. I think scrolling slurs on a student's locker particularly if you're going to come back and tell me some nonsense about bullying I think that's serious real talk I think flunking gym is kind of serious too because that's just I mean wow it's lazy and wow you can't even put your gym shorts on they're teasing I got oh I got they're calling you fagging gym I got it my bad they even said when he did put his gym shorts on they got that in the Jeffco files. You put your gym shorts on to go and shove females and call them a bitch. Got it. Maybe keep your gym shorts off and just take the D in class. Uh, let's see. All this lying. This is a stunt and a prank. How many times have we going to hear that this was a prank from woo, white culture? Uh, let's see. I told you they went to the University of Arizona. I told you his teachers were stunned. Uh, that's in Cass's book that he even got accepted there. And given what we read in Cullen's book, agree. We said that if this was a black person, how would he even get in school? Somebody even said that, like, whoa, talk about affirmative action. Jesus. Uh, what kind of school is the University of Arizona? Is this just like a party school? They don't do academics there? You just go and everything is like basket weaving? Let's see. Go Wildcats. Uh, let's see the shock of our lives our well-mannered organized kid the kid we never had to worry about had broken into a park van and stolen electronic equipment as a result of being put on probation he completed the death see 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 that right there tell the truth Sukli old man he didn't even complete the program Cass said he went I mean they're supposed to do I think like 40 hours I mean he, I don't even think he did 10 Tell the truth, man. And he was doing so bad at school, his uh, probation officer was fussing. That's what I'm saying. How did you get through this program early? You're being fussed at. You're about to fail gym. That's a part of it. They said you're not supposed to. Nothing. Not even shaving cream on the banister. Certainly not flunking gym. Nope. Early termination. Uh, Let's see. She said the first time we heard anything about explosives, I'm highlighting that as possibly false. Uh, just because, And when we had Cass on the program Monday, I wasn't even happy about that program, which is the case most times. He said that uh, attorney Michael Feger said that 
when that duffel bag comes in and all of that, he said, now nah, he said there wasn't evidence, but they said, hey, we got our project going on in the garage. Don't come out there. He said, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. We accurate. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Dylan's got a project in the garage, everybody. Don't go in the garage. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I told you, Eric stayed over like, what the hell? Who cares if he brought Pop-Tarts over? This dude is felony arrest. How is that? Okay. Z, get any of you all. Woke baby, once she's old enough. Z, if she gets arrested with a child, is that child going to be allowed to come over and spend the night at your house subsequently? And suspended from school. Same child. Huh. Let's see. See if I can wrap my notes up was Dylan interested in explosive even that about the fireworks like man I would like to see the whole train I wish they had like a, the body cameras I would like to see exactly what she said because she has a habit of saying things and then redacting and changing to remove culpability Cass talked about that repeatedly and about this incident specifically and saying there's not enough detail what do you mean guns and explode like what what fascination and particularly given that paper that he turned in uh, 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 uh. she's wigging about the website when Judy Brown comes over that's totally irrelevant like at this point there should be more than enough evidence that there are major problems both with your child and his interaction with Eric Hare I mean you've got tons of evidence at this point the website is just I mean how much of the cow do you need to eat before you realize it's steak metaphor she says that all of his friends not thinking that he could have been involved all I can say is that apparently many of these folks just being a white person being into explosives talking about killing black people uh, blowing up things having firearms these are things that they were known to be into and talking about apparently none of this stuff what I said before it's not abnormal behavior if you're classified as white that's what you're telling me got it Uh, let's see chapter two I even think her making emphasis of the fact that she was thinking he was going to zoom up in his dented old black BMW he'd fix up with his dad like all of that like okay so even though it's a BMW you don't think that this is a top of line car of anything it's old it's beat up it's dented it's rusted the mufflers fallen up and get to add in a little bit wholesome family he would work on it and fix it up put the muffler back on with old dad if that's the case you all certainly could have talked about that crazy paper he wrote right hmm Jewish home I fell out laughing with that because I just what the full sentence is while my mother's parents were Christian my father had been brought up in a Jewish home so my siblings and I were raised in both traditions I don't know what that means and I even substituting it for the times when people conflate being so called Jewish with a racial classification if someone had said I grew up in a black home I would hope you would look at them curiously maybe even wow are you saying something racist what is a black home or I grew up in a white home what does that mean anyway 
Uh, let's see. She said, I had lost my faith. I was afraid to attract God's attention to further draw down his wrath. That's what your child had on after he shot up the school, man. I know she meant that deliberately or what, but I certainly, that's, see, that's why I said she waited so long. I suspect a lot of people because they don't know that. They don't even know Eric Harris's shirt had natural selection on it. So right, like, well, uh, let's see. She has to emphasize that the people that came out, they were all ages, sizes, and races. We're not racist. We're Jewish. We love everybody. Everybody came out to bring us roast beef sandwiches and give us water and set up the escape route so we could get away from the bomb squad and the paparazzi in the suburbs where it was five niggers at the school. Yes, you had all races. It's one race. Uh, I already talked about the protection from the police. As we finished loading the car, some of our neighbors showed, oh, we got the roast beef sandwiches. Sign to go. They We got the escape. Tom contacted the police immediately. That was in Collins' book. Like... Ooh wee, yes, old wacky Dylan, that paper, yes, maybe we should call an attorney. Uh she keeps saying we are the last people in the world. Um I I mean that's just not true. <laughs> I mean, I don't even even to keep saying that under any circumstances, that's not true. And you just you got the roast beef sandwich. Where did you get the roast beef sandwich from? How did you whose house are you staying? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Like I don't even know what you're talking about. You have so much support uh, and help from so many, all different sizes and shapes and races. So what are you talking about that you're the last people in the world? No, you're not. You have lots of help. You're still one of us. It's so much lying to get sympathy. Like as she said, I'm vulnerable. We're so happy. No, you're not. No, you're not. Uh, let's see. All this firestorm of hatred, that's a metaphor. I don't know what that means. I don't see any evidence of that. And I've not seen any evidence of that over the past 25 years. It's been from day one, literally. It's been roast beef sandwiches, hugs, TED Talks, Oprah Winfrey, Dave Cullen, and others. Shill for her all the time. Read her article. Read her book. Check out her documentary. Isn't she great? Isn't she awesome? That's what I've seen. I've not seen any. Sue Klebold is lame and racist and a degenerate parent, and she's got two generations of degenerate. Ch- I've never heard anyone say that. She said, even the word suburban again, the incongruity of a triage center set up on a suburban front lawn. Yes on a white lawn if this had been in Negroville yeah they'd gonna shoot each other down but oh my god this in a white neighborhood and it's our fault oh oh okay saw my notes have to do a better job can't believe it lots of I would not have had all of this to think if we had not done our research on this book I said reading you can learn a lot about how white people practice deception this exemplary illustration deception every page every paragraph particularly if it were 2027 and we were reading this book and we had the deposition to see what they said to the parents oh man maybe we'll revisit if we're all alive healthy 
Uh, I don't know. Hopefully we'll be in a system of justice. It'll be even more fun to do our research. How about that? We'll be here tomorrow. Neutralizing workplace racism, hopefully, has been constructive for people's Thursday evening. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. No name calling, no throwaway offspring. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.